Hey guys, it's the MPG Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Mosler. This week I got Staffy Stethopolis. Sorry. Stethopolis. Stethopolis. Just butchered that, I'm sorry. Um, Staffy owns Yaya's, uh, for y'all that know, on Habersham, right in the heart of Ardsley Park. Um, they've been open for like six years, but your family's owned that building for a long time. Yep. Um, at the height, he's he, the, his family's invested in real estate for a long time. Uh, at the height of his holdings, you guys are 22. Roughly about yeah, 22. Roughly 22. So, how's it going? It's good. Welcome. Glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Um, so, kind of the classic way I start is uh, walking through kind of your career momentum from 18 to 19. Okay. So Go for it. So, what happened when you started? What? How'd you start? Turn 18, you get done with high school, where where you go? Well, turned 18, graduated high school. My goal back then was, you know, go play college football, which I did. That was quite the experience because things have changed since then compared to how they're regulated now. So. Did you guys have helmets? Oh yeah, we. Yeah, I'm not quite that old, but yeah, I had helmets, and uh, you know, it was one of them things that was quite the experience. Something I was always wanting to do. And I managed to achieve that, but the thing I failed at was uh, having done that, playing football was more important than the educational part. So it was one of the things. It was fun while it lasted, and then wind up coming back to Savannah and going to vocational school here and went into uh, heavy equipment and hydraulics and diesel engine kind of repair. And, then I wind up getting on, worked at the port, worked my way through, through uh, the maintenance and then worked in operations. And all during that time, I had a wonderful mentor back then that uh, I attribute a lot of where we at today was to George Nichols. For those who remember George, he's the one that kind of made that port and got it started on the path that it's at today. So he was the one that encouraged me about going back to school, and I did, and finished up with a bachelor's degree in business management. So with that, and moving throughout the port and doing different jobs and being promoted into various areas, gathered a lot of business ex you know, experience, a lot of experience in HR, having worked in safety and risk management, got to learn a lot about policies, and working with a lot of you know, attorneys with the state, government people. So all that kind of led to where we're at now pretty much, so. And so what's the transition then from the poor to Yaya's? Well, that was quite an experience with it itself because when I was at the port last, I was the uh, safety manager for the whole port. And was very involved, and basically my job was kind of a 24-7, always on call, regardless of what could happen. But with my parents, my dad had passed away, and my mom survived, my dad, and it was one of them things I couldn't do two jobs because my parents had invested in doing real estate as their retirement. And, uh, me and my dad, you'd a lot of the uh, maintenance work and stuff, but now that my dad passed, it was one of the things, couldn't do both, being working a job that's 24 seven, 
and having a 90-year-old mom at home and in our culture, it's one of the things I was more felt an obligation. That, you know, they helped raise me, but at the same time, I'm going to be there for them as they get older. So I resigned my position at the port to take over the properties that my parents had accumulated and did the maintenance and taking care of my mom for the last few years of her life till she passed. Um, and I know we had talked about it on Sunday, but Yaya's wasn't your like dream all the way through, right? So like, what was the, the what gave you the inspiration? <laughs> well, as crazy as it sounds, uh, after I resigned my position and started taking care of the properties, doing property management, which I kind of dabbled with it with my dad and all for 30-something years. But at this time, it was more or less in my hands deciding this, that, and the other. And I've always been a very competitive person, always looking for something to move into, do on. And that's why I probably, through my years at the port, changed so many jobs and always moving forward into bigger and better things. So having that kind of a, a mindset and having done property management now taking care and then my mom passed away and it's like, okay, having a lot of friends and you know how your friends are. We had the building on 48th and Haversham where Yaya's is now. That was one that my, uh, my understand my great uncle had it built back in the 20s and the irony of the building is when Archley was developed and this is basically what my dad had told me from my uncle's side of things that um, Archley when it was being developed as with anything back during the early 20s and not that we had worldwide transportation it's still horse and buggy and you know Henry Ford was just pretty much putting out automobiles so it was very new but a lot of neighborhoods that were developed relied on some source of grocery store hardware store that serviced those areas mm -hmm. because a lot of people walked even when I was growing up back in the early 60s my parents walked a lot of places, so not like everybody had cars, but that was one of the form of transportation. So the building at that time was built just because it kind of fit the, the model of having a, a place of convenience for Ardsley. And as I was told, it's kind of an interesting story that when it was being built, I was told my uncle, or great uncle at the time, it was like a gentleman's agreement, which back then that's how business was conducted. Now it's like, you better have it in black and white. Think about how many pieces of paper would have needed to be signed now. Exactly, I mean, back then you, your word had meaning to it, right. and you held to it. Now you gotta have all these attorneys and legalities and all cover, you know, all the black and white on paper. But back then, like I said, it was a gentleman's agreement when Ardsley was developed. My great uncle built the building or so. And basically it provided a grocery store, which was an AMP, Atlantic and Pacific, for those who might remember those. And in the corner there was a, a pharmacy, Wells Fargo, uh, Wells Pharmacy, and the store that's currently uh, occupied by Susan Mason's catering was a hardware store. So it basically 
serviced Ardsley Park. And that's why if you ride around Ardsley, you don't find any other businesses from the north or south of Victory to where the city limits was on 52nd. But now it's more or less until you go on the other side of uh, Columbus where you run into like uh, Habersham Plaza and all those places. But during that time, that was the building, and that's why there was no other businesses built. But having that building gone through my dad, now we inherited many years ago after my dad's passing, and doing real estate and looking for that next new thing, and like they say, sometimes it's great to have good friends because <laughs> your friends can advise you in ways you might regret and <laughs> might not like lose friendships over. So it was ironic that we worked Greek Festival and having worked Greek Festival for so many years, and especially the last, before we actually opened Yaya's Kitchen, it was one of those deals that you hear people like, oh, it'd be nice to have like a Greek store. Yeah having Greek goods like they always try to do at Greek Festival every year. And, you know, hearing that, because now not working at the port where you're always working, now I had more time, I was able to contribute more time at work Greek Festival. Hearing all this and then some of these other friends of mine were like, man, you should open up a Greek store. You know, y'all got that corner store. Because it, uh, it had become vacated. It was a, a pet grooming place prior it become vacated and several friends and as crazy as it sounds not only that but some of my own kids were like encouraging it you should do it you got the place <laughs> you should go ahead and expand in doing a greek business so you know i wasn't too keen but you know i said what the hell let's look into it and yeah. then the concept of yaya's kind of started from there you know it's like you ain't got to pay rent so if you take a loss, it's not like you're going to really get, you know, beat up real bad. You can always turn around and re-rent it. So Nobody's going to come around and evict you. It, yeah, <laughs> except for, you know, my wife because she handles the, the books a lot. <laughs> but uh, she probably evict me, but it's kind of like one of those casualties of war. I'm stuck with you. <laughs> you know, I, I just have to deal with you and see if we can make a go of it. So, yeah. you know, that's kind of how Yaya's originated it was going to be like a greek store having greek products because stuff specialty items that you didn't find in a grocery store and then it was like doing pastries and things that are more traditional greek that you don't find around here because you know savannah's a big city but then again it's not like a you know a dallas or atlanta where you have so much variety of things and you have big greek communities yeah so, you know, that was the challenge. Let's go for it, try it. And then you, from there, it was like, what do we do? How do we build the model? And it was like, okay, first of all, you got to get products and vendors and got to get the right people on board. But the biggest challenge with any business is securing your vendors. Now, like with anything else, a lot of people who go into business they tend to copy everybody or they use someone else's mold. Kind of like when you go into a franchise, someone's already done the product. Yeah. It's a proven product in most cases. Not all franchises <laughs> are proven and some don't work for certain areas. But 
you know, it wasn't a ready-made product, but we got to venture out. But the biggest thing, going back to my port days and being mentored, it was always, what is it that makes you uniquely different? What can you offer different than others? And the same thing with the port industry and why the port's so big now, because they were doing things back then in the 80s and early 90s where other ports were retrenching when you had all that downsized era or correct size era with companies. The port took advantage of it and basically they continued building. They created the ICTF yard, which basically was the forthcoming of 24-hour service in the container industry. So having that kind of foresight, but also trying to create something uniquely different is what kind of went into building of Yaya's. So getting those unique products, but not to reinvent the wheel. So a lot of people want to reinvent the wheel when some cases you have a proven product. And when you have a proven product and you get the right product, that's where you can get into your differentiation. And that's when we went down and met with uh, Hellas Bakery, Jimmy D and Nick down there and Tarpon Springs. So for those that were not fully aware, but Tarpon is like little grease. They still do sponge diving and stuff like that. But, you know, wherever you went, you heard of this place for their outstanding Greek variety of pastries. And we approached them, told them what we were doing. It was, you know, kind of when, okay, do we do this with y'all and be a direct kind of partnership? So we were given the opportunity and it was weird, but yet it was quite classic because after we got their first shipment of product, we opened up, it wasn't a week. All of a sudden, I'm looking out the front door and here comes Jimmy D, who is one of the main people who helped get Hellas on board with our store and get their access to their wonderful products. And he's driving up and I'm like, the heck, you know, that Jimmy D. And it was funny because he came in to visually inspect how we procured their products like just to make sure that you were like an yeah it, that we and it's like you know i'm not trying to claim anything that we're doing we're basically bringing in their top grade product yeah and we're promoting it and, hey we're we're proud to be part of hellas and providing their wonderful products here in savannah so it's kind of like no different than you would say oh i'm serving maine lobster in georgia the idea was bringing the best of the best. best of the best to the area. So he pops in and he was very impressed. And, you know, we talked that night and it was a wonderful conversation because he was very impressed at how we were promoting and handling their product. That we jokingly about it because he says, I called Nick. He was in Greece and told him because he was just checking to see how we were doing with their stuff. And he says, well, I got some good news, bad news. And, I said, okay, let's go with the bad news. He said, well, well I called Nick in Greece, and I think I ran his uh, cell bill up a little bit with those over-distance charges. <laughs> but he says the good news is uh, he liked what he heard, and uh, he's agreed with us to 
expand and basically open up the whole Hellas arsenal to y'all. So it's been a special relationship. There's some wonderful people. I mean, their product is second to none. It's consistent. And one of the things you run into with any culture, I'm sure with Greek ladies in particular, they don't write recipes down. They, they keep it in their head. But so every batch could be a little different. <laughs> and that's one of the things we used to talk about is like everybody gets their hands in it. And then it's like one week or one batch could be a certain way. The other could be a different way. So it's more about quality and consistency. So they were our first to get on board and we slowly progressed. And now it was like, where do we go and try and get our other main products? So then, you know, we heard about Krenos, which Krenos is one of the biggest distributors imported Greek products and Mediterranean kind of things. And they're mostly out of New York. And then they expanded into, uh, Chicago, I understand. And then just after we opened, found out that they uh, <clears throat> had opened up a distribution center outside of Atlanta. So called up there, got some information. We went up there and, and met uh, Annetta. And I believe she's like the GM up there for uh, Krenos in Atlanta with Nevis. Wonderful people. And we sat down and talked and told them what we were wanting to do, and we kind of fell in line. And ever since then, we had a, have had a great relationship. So they, we've kind of partnered in, and they've been wonderful to work with, which has allowed us to bring a lot of the sealed package stuff, different jams, teas, uh, delmadas, an assortment of real Greek olive oil, not generic stuff, or mixed olives. They all come from world-famous Kalamata, which they're known for their olives. And just like with any other product, certain places are known for their yeah. product, just like Vidalia and their sweet onion. Yeah. And people ask, well, what makes the difference? This is real simple. If you think about it, soil is what makes the difference in product growth. And I says, that's one of the big things with Kalamata, their soil is enriched and it makes their olives very flavorful. Just like if you go to Vidalia, you know, you wonder what makes their sweet onion sweet. So a lot of it's soil, just like too, when you look at wines, a lot of people, for what I understand, some of the best Riesling wines in the world come from Germany because of the soil's acidity. So. Having met with them and partnered, so now we got two pieces of the puzzle. So we have pastries, Greek pastries, and we have an arsenal of them. We even got baklava cheesecake and baklava chocolate cheesecake, which a lot of people find that interesting because you don't think of these things, but those are some of the wonderful products that Hellas provides with us. And then now with Krenos having real olives from Kalamata, real feta cheese. And one of the things you run into with businesses and other restaurants, a lot of people prefer they get the feta they can get. And most of that's cow's milk feta. Cows that are fed hay. So the milk texture that makes the cheese is going to be Less. bland. Yeah. And if you've ever had imported feta that's made with sheep or goat's milk, 
Whereas a lot of the sheep over in those parts, like in Greece, they graze along mountainsides, natural vegetation, which alters and gives that milk that special flavoring. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever had regular domestic feta, and you've had imported feta that's made from cow's milk, uh, sheep's milk, or goat's milk, you can taste the difference. It's hard to go back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is a little bit difference in pricing, but it's about quality. And I know several years ago, it was an interesting fact that when we did Greek Festival, Chris Simon was chairing it with uh, Gabrielle. And one of the things they were trying to do, and Chris having, uh, he used to own, I think Captain Chris is out at the beach. He's been in the food industry and real estate industry a long time. But it was like, you know, he was saying today's market, people are demanding quality. So he was wanting to change in the fact that we had already established connections. He pushed and he, you know, did the extra cost factors into getting more imported cheeses when they made products there. And they used it on their salads. And as interesting as it was, we were running a Greek store there and it was like hearing the people, oh my God, what did they do this year? I mean, the flavor of the cheese is different and they can taste it different. And that was one of the things Chris and Gabrielle set out to do Greek festival was to kind of bring some of the real, you know, because everybody in business now, you know, they take the shortcuts. Right. It's all about profit-driven markets. And granted, it is a fundraiser. But see, Chris brought a different mindset to it by, okay, we could still do profit, but yet let's do the quality. So with that being said, you know, and that's what we built a lot of Yaya's Kitchen on was quality products, you know. Might not sound Greek, but yeah, I'm full-blooded, first-generation Greek. And that was one of the things that I've been stowed from my upbringing. That, you know, you put the effort in it, do it right, or don't do it at all. So, you know, we got the two main products, and now it's kind of spilling over. We're seeing what's the next step. So then we started expanding into doing some food. So the model was in being a safety manager, my big concept has always been safety. Even when I worked out there at the port, it was about being proactive and being safe. And one of the things we were running into, you know, you listen to a lot of people, you learn from others, you take what people tell you, and then you go with it. But one of the things, having a background in safety and going to a lot of food shows, come to realize that food process, processing and all has changed. And being kind of green at it, but yet having the background to kind of navigate through things, help because you run into a lot of businesses and the first thing they tell you is, oh, getting food preppers, getting people to work because these are not like you know, high-end paying jobs and having the the people to be able to do things. And then you hear all these horror stories in the food industry. Oh, so-and-so dropped this and picked it up and served it and things like that. So as we were diving into it, 
you see a lot of the food industry itself was starting to kind of regulate itself. And one of the big things that I seen in that early stages was a lot of the food distributors were doing the actual prep work beforehand. Now granted, it's a little more costly, but yet when you sit down, like from any business perspective, I don't have to have that extra person, but at the same time, I know it's being prepped, clean, and sealed correctly, correctly and safely. So they kind of take that step, and that's where you see in a lot of the evolution with foods and food distribution. So we took advantage of that. I mean, I know I've had some critics that said, yay, well, we prep it fresh. I said, well, it's still fresh. It's in a packaging. You still get food trucks like with any other business every week, twice a week. But the thing is, we've eliminated a step of having to depend someone in our facility versus having it done properly and sealed fresh and properly uh, regulated. And it just eliminates that one extra hand that you don't have to worry about. Are they going to show up for work or not? Or, you know. So with food safety going into it, we were able to move to the next step. So we started getting, and then we started outreaching to Greek companies. When I say Greek companies, there's a few out there that specially use their products, their recipes for a lot of your traditional Greek favorites. So we partnered up with uh, now Athenian Foods. Because okay. they do a lot of the pasticho moussakas and things like that. We get it, and we prep it, and go from there. But one of our biggest players in our industry, and I think that's been kind of the the niche that's moved us forward. Euros are real big, popular in this country. I think that's what Greek food, food's most known for, I would say, in America. Yeah, yeah, everybody, you know, Greeks are known for Euros. So as we were going through that next step and evolving with our business, we started out with what typically you can get. You know, we were testing the water. So as we tested the water, it was like, how can we do stuff different? And then going back to the health issues and health department issues, one of the biggest things that the industry has come People traditionally see the big cone. And with time and now with health issues and stuff, unless you're going through that cone very rapidly, a lot of businesses would, like during the day when things were slow, they cut the cone off. So basically you had raw meat sitting there okay, turning with no flame. I got you. Okay, yeah. So one of the big industries changes unless you're going through a lot, or in most cases, a lot of people would, when it gets par cooked, you know, they'll continue to shave it. And then when someone orders it, they'll throw it up on the flat top and heat it back up to temperature to be served safe. But then again, the industry is starting to change. And one of our biggest players in this market was Kronos for years. We were trying to get Kronos. Kronos is one of those companies that's well known up north. They're like probably one of the biggest Euro makers 
and they make a fine quality euro. The difference is they mostly distributed up north. And here it was, going to some food shows and meeting Pete Lucas. It was like, okay, how can we get your product? So what makes their product worth trying to get over the rest? Well, they, first of all, their product is a top shelf Euro meat. It's a high quality. But then they were doing something uniquely different in the industry compared to the norm that we've always seen, the, the cones. They had developed the Kronos broil. And to me, that was a, the game changer for us. Granted, it's not cheap compared to what you can get cones and other sliced products. But the Kronos broil not only is a top grade meat, but the process, you steam it up. It's pre-sliced like you would on a cone. They have robotic arms they use. But the idea behind it was you steam it up to temperature so you don't have to recook it. You avoid all the health issues that you have in cooking and preparing raw meats. So we were on board with it. They were on board. They made it happen for us. So we were able to get their stuff in and bring it down here. So they made the accommodations, offset some of the costs, set up the distribution. So we were able to do that. And now we built our business around Kronos because of the Euro. and. The fact that we like to think we got some of the best Euro in in town and around this area just because of the products we serve and the fact we proudly are a Kronos Euro place as they are their motto is we know Euros well being we're partnered with them and we're uh, a business that serves Kronos product especially their Euro meat just so we backing or Exactly. And now we can claim we know Euros just like our, you know, main <laughs> Euro distributor. So yeah. they've been wonderful. And that's kind of been the other little pieces into the puzzle, the third stage of it all. So not to get too far off topic, but what's been the tough, I want to get back to real estate, but before then, what's been the toughest part of of opening a restaurant. So, like, I don't know very much about the restaurant industry. I don't know how many of our guests know anything about it either. But, I mean, I'm always curious. What, what was the toughest part? Well, I can tell you this much from my own experience. I can't speak for others' experience right, because yeah. everybody has their own business models. Yeah. But one of the things that I think that best prepared me is having a business background and having, you know, a management degree one of the things I learned was the differentiation between the American model of business versus like the Japanese model. Granted, it's been many, many years since I've been in college and going through business classes. That's not to say things I'm sure are similar, but they could have changed. But one of the things they were talking about why the, China, uh, the Japanese were so successful, they look at things long-term. Their business models and plans that I remember in school was 10 years. And the majority of other business plans typically run five years. The problem you have with a lot of the American business plans is instant gratification. We want it done in one year. Yeah, one or, year. Yeah, yeah, back yeah, then yeah. it was like one year. Yeah. But 
now it's like you said, yeah, we want to see that money. They see everybody making money. Let's jump in there. We're going to do the same thing. Everybody's on the edge of their seats for the quarterly earnings report. Exactly. <laughs> so it was one of them things when we took this approach, we had the facility. And that's a big thing starting out. That was one somewhat advantage is we couldn't evict ourselves. Right. Granted, we didn't you know, make the money to pay the other bills and stuff like that that come along with owning a building like taxes and regular maintenance and all, but we had that slight advantage. But the biggest thing was we were prepared to go the long haul. You can't sit there and expect that instant money, at least not with us. I know with some uh, franchises, you can probably do that based on location, but from someone starting scratch, I've never been in a restaurant business, but I knew certain key elements of what has to happen as with any business model. So after two years, we started out doing those things and we've steadily evolved based on our customer base. And that's another big thing that you have to be very keen with any business is knowing your customers, listening to your customers. The problem you have with too many businesses the owners are going to do what they want, what they think customers. It's kind of like politics. Now, you got the government think they know what they what you need, not letting people try to derive at what they know they need right. or need to do. So with that kind of mindset, it was like, listen to your customers. See what's working. Be able to adjust. It's not like, this is my product. This is what I'm going to do. So having that said listening to customers, having our products, we marched on. So it was funny when we started out, we'd make so much a week and it was like, oh, oh, <laughs> are we going to ever make it? So as the year went by, the following year, we were still monitoring. We were still way behind eight ball. I mean, we even went out and actually borrowed money with SBA at the time. And, you know, it was more or less had to do what we had to do, but you had to be prepared. It's, you know, you got to listen. You got to watch what you're doing. So, and having resources, looking in, there's a lot of places where you can go and see about acquiring money for small business. But one of the funny stories I must share because I think it was an important part, and this is a good thing I would tell anybody whether they're starting a business or people looking to gain business. When we first opened, I called one distributor, which I called many distributors and several did come and we talked and looked at our plan and what did we need to do to be able to get food distribution, licensing, all that fun stuff. Three months later, this one food distributor salesperson called me up and he came by. So I'm sitting there, and I here we are three months in, maybe four at the time. And he's, like, asking me some questions. I showed him my portfolio where we had gotten the LLC, gotten the license, gotten all the food requirements, all the IRS tax numbers, state. I mean, it's like, God, I'm like, this is a lot of work. <laughs> so we had done all that, and then he's looking at it. He says, wow, I'm impressed. I says, why are you impressed? He says, typically when I go to new businesses, they're all expecting me to do it for them. And I kind of looked at him. I says, well, 
Is that why it took you a while to come? He says, well, to be honest with you, yeah. I said, well, if you took that approach, I said, I don't need to do business with you. So I kind of sent him on his way. We left on good terms, but I said, you know, one thing I've learned in life, and I kind of learned this from an old foreman I had, he went to uh, Bacchus Cadillac back in the late 80s. And he was going to buy his wife a brand new Cadillac. He went out there, which, you know, at the time I worked in maintenance and I basically had blue mechanics clothes on. And he did too. And I remember the next day he drives up in a Lincoln. Or his wife drove up in a Lincoln because she worked out there at the port too. It was quite funny. And he says, yeah. He said, I went out to the Bacchus Cadillac place to buy my wife Cadillac. And I had cash money because, you know, Back then, a lot of folks dealt with cash. Yeah. So he says he went out and he stood on a lot for about an hour, walking around looking at Cadillacs, and he said he kept looking at them salespeople sitting in there looking at him. And finally, about an hour later, he says they one finally came out, and he says, well, can I help you? He says, well, you know, I was going to buy this car, but apparently y'all more interested, and you're probably judging me by based on what I'm wearing. Then he pulled out that big wad of cash and he says, you know, I think I'm going to go down to the Ford dealership and look at what they have. So I say to a lot of people, I says, don't let what people's appearance be the judge. I yeah. know a lot of people says, don't judge a book by its cover. Yep. It's true in a lot of aspects. And I've known a lot of people who are very wealthy, doing very well. And I'm, you know, you wouldn't know it by looking at them or by what they drive. So, the, you know, the whole idea is don't judge people in any kind of business or even if you're in the real estate market selling stuff. I mean, don't let that be the turn. You treat everybody equal. Because even at that, there was an old saying we had in our marketing, or actually in our trade development department, worked at the port. Just as you went in the door, there was a big sign, and it reminded everybody who worked in trade development. Takes years to gain a customer, takes seconds to lose one. So never underestimate, even in the real estate market, I know a lot of realtors. And a lot of times, you know, they see people and they don't, you know, they just take them based on what they're wearing or what they're driving, but don't underestimate them because you don't know. They could become one of your biggest clients, best clients, and that's kind of how we did, and I take those same things and I apply them to Yai's Kitchen as we move forward. But after we got started, second year roll around, it picked up a little bit. We're seeing increase. So about two and a half years in, I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, I know that typically two to three years is where you kind of find you hope to make that break-even point at least. We were getting, like, second-guessing myself. I said, what the hell did I get myself into? <laughs> and even my wife was questioning. But, you know, I have to give credit to my accountant, Stephanie Parrish. <laughs> she sat there and she says, I don't know if you want to stop at this point. I said, why is that? She says, you're starting to get to that, you know, you're not declining. You're steadily, your business is steadily moving in the forward direction, which is a good thing. long as you're not dropping off and you're steadily marching forward, you're making progress. 
So she talked us into continuing to march. So we continued to march. Here it is, six and a half years later, we're still adjusting. Granted, this year, COVID, I mean, it's been very detrimental to a lot of businesses. But one thing I can say about ours, the way we kind of set our business up from the get-go, because it was all the product preparations and stuff were all done in ways through manufacturing through authentic Greek companies and yep. not just the run-of-the-mill Joe Blows. And the fact that we were set up mostly for doing takeouts and we evolved based on our customer base, which, you know, that's helped us. Granted, it's been trying time, but, you know, fortunately we had a model that seems to have worked even with this COVID. I feel bad for so many other businesses. I mean, it's, it's a tragedy. And, you know, it goes back to any business model. I mean, you look, there was a time, I don't know, do you remember VHS? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, there was a time, there was this thing called Blockbusters. And, I mean, them things were popping everywhere. up everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, times change. And that's the biggest thing you have to adapt with any business is listening to your customers, seeing what the markets dictate. You better be prepared to make those shifts. If you don't, you know, you were here one day, gone the next. And that's why you see a lot of these industry trends. Hell, I remember when <laughs> Betamax came out. That was prior to VHS. Okay, I was like, I don't Betamax know, I was competing, which I think was a Sony product. Betamax was competing with VHS to see who was going to dominate the video markets. And apparently VHS took over and out did the uh, Betamax, but for those who remember, it was, Betamax was actually a smaller cartridge compared to VHS, but I think it was something to do with quality and mass production was readily available with VHS. So those were the competing factors. So when you look at back, and as they say, a lot of times you learn from history and you apply different things you learn or see into your business models and whatnot. So, Going back with Yaya's Kitchen, you know, we apply different things, but the biggest thing is listening to your customers. I, I stress that a lot. But also, and probably the one biggest thing of all is customer service. When we open, one of the biggest things I told a lot of our employees, especially Gentry, she came on board with us from the very beginning. She's still there. Love her to death. Sometimes I want to shoot her, but you know, <laughs> she kind of like my Sour Patch kid. There's days I love her, some days she's just, you know, but she's done a lot for us with this business and all. And it was one of those things, you know, customer service. I said, what is it that you run into a lot of these chain stores or other stores? Customer service. I said, I want everybody that comes in here, you make them feel like they're at home. That was my biggest niche besides a couple of other things. But I could not stress, that's what makes Yaya's Kitchen different. I said, you can go in and get hamburgers anywhere. You can go in and get euros anywhere. But I says, it's not just the food quality that sells, it's the experience. Look at Chick-fil-A. It's the experience. And, you know, you take those things. And what is it that makes you different from the rest? 
I mean, you could be a cookie cutter like any place, but starting a business on your own is what sets you apart from the rest. And that was one of the biggest things. My pet peeve was customer service. You treat all them customers as though you'd want to be treated. I mean, I, a lot of people laugh. That's been said for many, many years, even way back, no telling. Yeah. But there's a lot of truth to it, and you apply those things. So with customer service, that's your difference with others. Also, again, I said food quality, food product. You know, you have different places that get certain foods from certain places. That's their little niche that differentiates them from their competitors. And that's what I tell a lot of people. And one thing, I'm not a, a person that sits and badmouths anybody's business. A lot of people will ask about, you know, other businesses. And I said, look, it's real simple to me the way I operate a business and you can apply this same concept to any business or even as a realtor don't bash your competition you ain't no need to be negative tell them what makes you different from the rest right set yourself apart in a way that's projected in a positive why should i vote for you as they say nowadays why should i vote for you it's why should i do business with you why should I come to your place? So I'm not going to sit there, well, so-and-so, he does this, or so-and-so serves, you know, I don't use people's names or any business. I say, well, here's the difference. Yaya's Kitchen is authentic. First of all, we're using a top-shelf meat product that no one else is using because it's more costly to us, but it's not just about the profits. It's about customer satisfaction and building a brand with quality and customer service. So, yes, we use the Kronos Brawl uh, Euro meat. We use feta, real feta. Okay, what's the difference, real feta? Our feta that we use is similar stuff we sell. It's imported feta made with real sheep's milk. Yes, it's a little more costly than your commercial grade feta that you typically find at other restaurants because it's readily available. But we serve all our products with real feta, imported goat's milk, sheep's milk feta. Which I'm not just saying this, you can you can literally taste the difference. Oh yeah. So good. I get a big kick out when I was first starting this business and then I was realizing now that I was putting more emphasis and focus on trying to do this business with Greek product. I remember having gone to Sam's one day and I seen Greek feta, said Athena's Greek feta. And it was so funny, I guess, when I was looking at it, and then on the side I had a little sticker on it said made in Wisconsin. <laughs> I said, yeah, it's feta cheese, but it's made with, you know, cow's milk. Yeah. So going back to what makes us different. And like I said, this is one of the things you can apply in any business sense. Don't be negative. People can't, to me, I don't like negativity. I'd rather be positive and tell you the differences, just like our Greek yogurt. It's real Greek yogurt. We bring it in from Canada. It's a Greek family. They use goat's milk and all to make it. So real tzatziki is made with Greek yogurt. 
Now, granted, there's so many Greek yogurts out there and a lot of stuff, and it's funny, mate, I've had doctors even say, a lot of stuff you buy on the shelves, lots of sugars in it, that's not real Greek yogurt. If you've ever tasted our Greek yogurt, it's like ice cream. It's thick. And it's funny how all that came about, but finishing up with the tzatziki, it's got real Greek yogurt. It's not sour cream. And I went to a place that sells a lot of euros. It's a chain. And I said, what do y'all use with tzatziki? They use cucumber salad dressing. And a lot of places use sour cream. Yes, the sour cream is cheaper. Yeah. But we actually bring in our tzatziki and our Greek yogurt. And one nice thing I will say that was kind of gratifying to me, when we first opened, like I said, it was more of a pastry and and um, grocery store type place. Yeah. And one of the things we would gotten in was Greek yogurt. We had a fella who came in, started coming in our store. He was like so tickled to death, older gentleman. And he was like, man, finally got a Greek place around here. He says, I was in the military, spent some time over in Greece. I love their food and it's nice to have the product. And the fact that he found out we had the Greek uh, yogurt, he said, let me try it. Oh, he said, this is real Greek yogurt. And people who've tried it compared to what you get in the store, it's way different. Night and, and day. It it's night and day taste-wise, too. Plus, it doesn't have all the sugars, and it has all those things that doctors said, no, don't get any yogurt. Get the probiotic stuff, the healthy stuff. Well, we kind of have that. So... He was getting it, and then a few months into after being open, he comes in, and he says, oh, man, he looked a little depressed on the downside, and he's like, just got discovered, or just got doctor's note that pretty much I've been diagnosed with cancer for the fourth time in my life. And he's like 80 years old. He said, but I fought it four other, uh, three other times. Now it's the fourth battle with it. Hopefully I'll overcome it. I said, well, I hope so, too. So seven months, six, seven months had gone by. I hadn't seen him. And he pops in the store. He lost all his hair and everything. And, but he looked to be in good spirits. And he came up to me personally. He says, you know, you guys were my godsend. I says, how's that? He says, this is the first time, and even at my age, that I went through cancer and chemo, fighting cancer. When you go through all this stuff, you tend to have issues eating, nausea, and not being able to hold food down, he says. He says, that Greek yogurt y'all had got me through. He says, this was the first time I battled cancer and going through all this that I was able to eat stuff that helped that burning sensations that came along with my treatments. And it was quite funny. I was like, flabbergasted that we were able to help him being 80, 81 now. But the interesting part was, I'm thinking there, I'm looking at Gentry, I said, well, that explains a lot. I said, because now that he said that, we were thinking back because we were getting a lot of customers coming in that wore scarves. And they were coming to get the yogurt because we sell it by, you know, half pound, pound, whatever amount you want. 
So all of a sudden, I'd explain, Omar was saying to the folks, hey, go get you some of this yogurt, that'll help. So that explained why a lot of this stuff. Which is that still continue today? Uh, yeah, we still get quite a few cancer patients that come in looking for our yogurt who have kind of word of mouth have found out. It's been, you know, from what I've been told, a lot of them has helped. You know, I haven't had cancer, you know, knock on wood, but at the same time, you know, it's good to know that we got something that's helped a lot of people. I know a lot of people who've fought cancer. It's a bad thing, but, you know, it gives you a little sense of gratitude and satisfaction that you have something there that helps. Right. And it's not readily available elsewhere. So, you know, with the business, you know, having those kind of things, is, you know, we continue to march on. And then it was one of the next things, again, like I said, listen to your customers, see what they take. But one of the things, too, that when you make any changes in anything you do, test it. A lot of people I don't think quite test it. They just see, oh, it's cheaper. Let's go with that. Because I can say about a couple of restaurants that I go to frequently, when they change something, you can tell it. Oh, yeah. And then I know, hell, they, they, they cut back. They've gone to a cheaper quality product. And I know a lot of people is profit driven. But there's two models. You can be there or you can be more of the, the quality. And you want to keep a standard. If you set a standard, stay at it. So when we were moving forward with this, we would try different things. So give you a, a good example. We had a lot of people in the neighborhood we're always talking about because a lot of them in the Ardsley have migrated from up north and other areas in the middle, Midwest area and whatnot. And they would say, man, you can't find a good hot dog around. About the only place you find hot dogs now is in convenience stores. We were talking about this. Michigan, baby, yeah. So, a lot of people were saying, hey, y'all should start serving hot dogs. And it's like, why would I want to serve hot dogs in a common Greek place? <laughs> but, you know, this is kind of what the market was dictating in our area. No one else was doing it. Okay, let's try it. So, what we did before we make any decisions on any products... I like to battle test everything before you just up and do it for money. Yeah. Oh, this is the... So we actually had gotten Nathan's Hebrew National, which are two of your national well-known hot dogs up north. And we actually found one that was an all-beef hot dog that we were trying from a food show. One of the vendors says, hey, give my hot dog a try. So we'd get samples from our distributors, try them. And we let the customers try them. We'd cook them up, and we'd know which ones were what based on what plate. we let them try it. So we get a consensus based on customers' taste. And it was surprisingly that the hot dog we were, the, I guess the uh, no-name brand that was made by a specialty butcher shop, uh, won out over Nathan's and uh, Hebrew National. I was shocked. <laughs> You know, you don't build a brand based on that, but it's also food quality. So that's when we introduced the hot dog that wasn't more or less the recognizable, but that's what everybody loves. So then it's about getting the right hot dog 
as to what people would like. Not just the quality, but even the, the size. We have a big hot dog that we use that's not, you know, overly big. That's where you break your jaw to try and eat it, but it's a one you can bite, kind of like the Wendy's lady from way back when. Where's the beef? You know, <laughs> nowadays you go in the grocery store and you look at the hot dogs, you buy one, put it in a bun, it, it just disappears. So, you know, that was another thing. We added hot dogs because of customers. Then a couple of years ago, we were getting a lot of students because we're right there by Charles Ellis <coughs> and Savannah Arch. And one of the things that kind of materialized in a weird kind of way was we had all these students. And, you know, you always hear about parents working, trying to get off working time, go pick the kids up. They might have traffic accidents, delays, whatnot. So one of the things we noticed, because we have a pretty good relationship with the principal and all at Charles Ellis, and we were noticing, you know, a lot of times kids Parents wouldn't get there in time to pick them up. They'd hang around on the school grounds or out front and whatnot. So we kind of adopted this thing and told the principal, said, hey, tell all these kids they can come stay in our shop. So it went from a couple of kids, and now when school was in and we got before COVID, I mean, there was days we didn't have up to 30 kids in our place. And it was interesting because we'd have a lot of parents comment and call us up and thought that was the greatest thing and appreciated the fact that their kids had a safe place to go and hang out. We actually have a few that'd be there at 5 o'clock and they're doing their homework till their parents would get off of work. So that kind of gravitated into that because it's like it's not the busiest time, but you know, even though they're kids, they're still customers. You should welcome. I know back when I was growing up, there were places... And even where we were at now, the convenience store that used to be in the middle was one of those places they wouldn't let but one or two students in at a time. But now we had a whole slew of them in there, and they pretty much <laughs> occupied our whole place. But to me, when you look back at safety, I said, you know, it's too valuable to put a kid's life in danger or, you know, a parent trying to work and then trying to pick up their kid, at least they know they have a sense of security. Even talked with one of the city officials, and he was shocked. He came in because we were discussing something in the Ardsley area, and he said, man, look at all these kids. I said, yeah, this is our daycare. And he's like, y'all run a daycare here too? I said, no, we basically have gotten one to schools and let them know that these kids can come here. If their parents are delayed or whatever, there's a safe haven. Where the parent and we have a lot of parents that literally would come there and pick the kids up, even though they get out at quarter till three. It could be three thirty, four o'clock, and like I can say we had a few. But he was shocked, and then I think what really shocked him even more, and he says, "Well, damn, that's a good way to make some more money." <laughs> I says, "How's that?" He says, "Well, I got I pay for after school care with mine," and I says, "Well, the only money we make is whatever they buy." Which still increases your revenue, right? Having oh, yeah. 30 extra people in the building. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, a lot of times these kids will come back because a lot of times they won't eat lunch or something, and they'll come and get something from our shop. So it's one of those things, you know, 
it has its advantages too, but yeah. to us, it wasn't about making more money. Right. To me, it was more about, hey, and you know, the comments that we got from so many parents and mothers, and especially some who didn't get off work till 4.30, and we'd have, you know, four or five, they were still there till almost five o'clock till their parents got off work. And they didn't have to pay for any daycare. So we had our kids, and just the gratification of knowing, hey, we've given these kids a safe haven and been able to help these other people with their work and provide. And then that's kind of how the ice cream came about. Because a lot of people were talking too. Oh, you know, everybody's got ice cream that's uh, from a machine. Yeah. Not too many people have hand-dipped ice cream. Right. You know, there's like two places and they're both downtown. And they're popular, but other than that, there's no real place, you know, to get real good ice cream. And that was one of the things, too. I, everybody has, you know, all kinds of ice cream. So when we sat down and looked at, okay, we're going to bring ice cream in. I just don't want to run, bring run of the mill, which, you know, you all had the popular things like Blue Bunny, Blue Bell, Haagen-Dazs, Briars, all their premium brands that typically restaurants forget but with us it was like i want something different so we went to some food shows and met different people with the industry and granite yet like i said the typical but one of the things that kind of stood out was a lot of these premium brands were like you know 12 to 14 percent butterfat and the more butterfat you have in ice cream is what makes it creamier and richer and a lot of times you ever been and got ice cream that's hard? It's typically because it's got more water content in it. That's what freezes it, makes the ice cream that's hard. That's why it turns rock hard. Yeah, that's what my explanation to ice cream when I was getting a, an education in it. So, with that being said, we went to food shows and came across a particular brand that kind of more or less advertised their brand as 16% butterfat. A step above we tried it we liked it we were doing some sampling at the shop and surprisingly enough a couple of the brands that we were sampling at the time mistaken them for certain other brands and they were shocked to know it wasn't so that's how we came across to bring our particular brand in and it's worked well for us it's brand that uh, you don't typically find around here is Kemp's uh, they're out of Wisconsin and Minnesota. I was going to say, it sounds familiar because I don't know if they serve in Michigan or not, but Kemp sounds extremely familiar, I imagine. Yeah, it's know. up from Wisconsin and Minnesota. My understanding it was a, a company that was formed and did dairy products, mostly milk, but then they developed into doing ice creams back in 1917. So, you know, we go the extra mile to bring that quality product just because a lot of their ice creams are 16 percent which is two percent above what the other companies not to say that they're bad but it's like okay we want to have that unique experience with the products we serve you know so like with anything else those are the little things that can make or break you but set you aside from the others and that's one of the things why i say you know I try to be positive about everything. So when you sell your product, you tell people why. What makes you different from the rest and not sit there and say, oh, they're all bad, bad, bad. Because I mean, 
Society's enough for that. Everybody's bad, 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 bad. You know, let's look at the positives. And I try to apply that with my business. And even when we talk about real estate, when we do rentals, I run into that a lot. You'll have people kind of, oh my God, these landlords we had, you know, they sold the house and they're kicking us out. Give us two weeks notice, this, that, and the other. Yeah, I'm a lot old school. I've listened a lot. And one of the things I've always tried to utilize, just like with the kids at our shop, it's kind of like give a good product at a fair price and people will continue to visit you or continue to stay. I see a lot of places it's all so commercial that they go for the max amount of money. Granted, they might get it because out of the necessity of somebody, but then they're moving out in a year or something like that. So we try to stay, you know, good bit below the going price people know well if i want to live in this area i'm got a good place it's all fixed up my rent is below what the going price so they're not out really having to look unless they're going to relocate way away from that location or go out of town because of job purposes so you got to take a lot of that into account which you know Business and real estate and everything, it's all interwoven. It's just the applications vary from different. But there's still those basic concepts of how things should be run. You apply it. Well, it's like Richard Branson. He said he owns like, I think, 250 businesses. You know Richard Branson? Yep. Yeah, he owns 250 businesses, and they're like, how do you know how to do all that? He's like, really, you don't have to know how to do every specific thing for every industry. Once you get the te- basic tenets of how a good business runs, you can apply it to anything. And I, you know, one of the things I must say to, and I think the world of this lady, when I got promoted at the port, her name was Marsha Bird, and I worked with her, and I was her assistant. And I remember she was over HR, did ER, employee relations, and she was always saying, Port's got to change in the way it operates. She says, and this is one of the biggest things that I hear from a lot of people. And I, you know, I'll say it here. Hopefully, somebody might, you know, learn something from it, might generate some interest. But there's a lot of truth in it. One of the things she told me when I started working for her, got promoted, and I finished up my degree and everything was, the world is changing. The workforce is changing. It wasn't like years ago the males did the work, women stayed at home. That old stuff was changing. Yeah. And she was seeing, because she kind of come through a lot of that. And she says, in order for this port to survive, it's going to have to change. And one of the things, she was a big advocate. And I tell you what, I learned a lot from her, because she made a lot of sense. she come up through the ranks, too. And it was like, you got a lot more single moms out here in this world. They taking care of their kids. Not always, you know, you don't have the father figure in their life that helps and mom's doing dad and mom. And she says, the port's got to change and give some flexibility. So if you get a call from the school, your sick, kid's sick, got to go get them. If you don't, because there was this motto, and I've heard it from several business owners, and I kind of sit and smile about it. It's like, 
you can't come to work, I don't need you. You know, I pay you to come to work, not for you to be leaving. I, I count on you. If I can't count on you, I don't need you. Well, I took that same concept that I was learning and hearing. And when we opened up our business, you know, granted, we had several moms that are like that. And one of the things I told them, I says, look, I'm going to work with y'all. I said, one thing I found out, when you build a team, everybody's got to be on the same page. But you got to be able to help within the needs and meet the needs of the changing workforce. And it's like I told my assistant manager, manager, I said, look, if one of you got to go, each one of y'all got to cover each other's back. I said, as long as somebody's here, I, I'm cool with it. You know, I'm not going to sit there and write you up or see how many times you've taken off because of your child or a family member or doctor's appointment or whatnot. And I attribute that to a, a successful business because the workforce has changed. And if you don't, you know, make exceptions, but yet, yeah, you depend on certain people, but you got to have contingencies all built into it. If your whole business model is based on one person, it's a broken business model anyway, right? Like, because what happens if that person, God forbid, gets in a car accident and dies? Well, your whole business is just done forever? Yep. You know what I mean? But you got to have those contingencies for other things, but yet allow your employees to have some flexibility. And one thing, you create great employees because not all businesses that you go to has that kind of flexibility. And by doing so, I think my experience has been you get happier employees. They understand, hey, if something happens, I have to go. They're going to work with me. They're not going to sit there and come back. Well, <laughs> you fired. So that's been kind of our motto, jumping on. But I say that to a lot of people. You got to watch the trends of work. But yet, you know, those days of yelling at people and all Unfortunately, you know, I still hear stories of people where they work, they get yelled at and all. It's kind of like I tell them. This was a motto that I learned many years ago while I worked at the port with George. His old expression was, if I got to be here all times, if I got to babysit you, I don't need you. And one of the things you typically don't see as much in a lot of management is empowering your people. When you sit there and you watching over them left and right all the time, it's almost like if you don't trust them, granted, there's some that are going to, you know, do the wrong thing. That's a given. But as a whole, you got to empower your employees, your workforce, build those trust factors, build those teams. And one of the things, too, a lot of people, I believe, has a misconception. They think it's all about money. Oh, I'm getting paid enough. I can get misabused, get nasty. Money is not the, the thing. I mean, if you've ever studied Maslow's hierarchy of needs, a lot of people, yeah, they think money's at the top, but not in every case. You know? Well, it's like a threshold, right? I think that... I don't remember the exact statistic on this. It's been years since I read this article, but it's like people, let's say like zero 
to 50,000, there's a big difference in happiness between the 50,000 and the zero. But then when you get from 50,000 to a million, the happiness level's a little bit more. You start getting diminishing returns up until, like, at some point it actually starts to go back down. Like yeah. The majority of people that have all this money are not as happy as the people that... Exactly, because... One of these food, water, shelter, right? Like, and that was one of the big things, too. I guess, you know, a lot of my influences, having worked 20-something years at Georgia Ports and having some wonderful people I worked with, learned a lot. And one of the things was when you have benefits and you have all these little trade-offs that we're doing for you, and people are, like, looking at the bottom line, oh, this is what I make. But yet, when you look at, okay, what's your benefits? What other little added things that people are doing? And not having your job threatened. I said, you, you see so many people nowadays that get stressed. They put up with their jobs because they need the job. But the harassment and the needs, it's not like you, you do one job. I, even when I worked at Port, I can see the trends were changing. That You were required many hats. Not just one or two hats. It's, in some places, you know, they put so much more demand on people. And it's kind of like, I'll give you a good example. Because when I was safety manager, I pushed to be more proactive. And fortunately, you know, the port was one of them that gravitated to being more proactive versus reactive to accident. Oh, we won't worry about it till it happens. Then we'll put something in place. But one of my mottos was with a lot of the employees driving jockey trucks and all out there in the port. And one of the things there for a while, we were starting to see a slight increase in accidents. So I'm sitting there, okay, what is it that's attributing that? Come to find out, granted, we were having a lot of movement because everything cycled out there back then. Now I think there's no more cycle. Peak periods, especially come September when all the Stuff were coming in for the holidays and <laughs> container movements, tremendous. So, you know, one of the models at that time, they didn't have a lot of employees because they didn't want to hire employees. Then when peak time came off, there wasn't enough work to keep people moving. You laid them off. A lot of manufacturers used to do that in this area. But the port. Well, I think it was everywhere, right? Yeah, pretty Constantly, much. Constantly, constant flu. And the port, pretty much, whoever they hired, they kept them on. And they just worked overtime. But one of the things that was starting to occur is overtime, people working. I mean, there was a couple of times I know employees that were saying, man, we'll get that fat paycheck. I had almost 40 hours overtime. So he's worked 40 hours and 40 over on top of that. And that's usually when you start seeing the, the levels and we were starting to see accidents. And I was sitting there telling GMs and I said, okay, we got to figure some things out here. Either we're going to hire some more people or this working people to a certain degree, it puts a lot of stress. And accidents start happening is when you start shortcutting things. So, you know, you take that same concept and you apply it to day-to-day -day lives with even regular people you work with and all, even family. So many demands will start cracking people, especially now with... <laughs> With COVID, my God. I mean, unfortunately, you know, the news doesn't reflect a lot of it. But, you know, when you watch and you read stuff on Facebook, my God, the uh, 
suicide rates are going up. Depression's going up. I mean, I go to my doctor every three or four months, get regulated, you know, and get old. They, they kind of put you on regiment. They keep checks on you. But it's kind of sad when you, you know, you talk to people. And I know here recently, just in the Savannah area, a couple of people had suicides from OD. Unexpected, but yet, you know, that's the times. But you got to look at all this stuff in your businesses and take into account. I know the government asks so much. It's kind of like even with talking about people going into real estate. And I know we had talked about it a little bit earlier, a couple of weeks ago, but I says, you know, you see all these shows on TV about these people jumping in a house flipping. And one of the things I says, I know some people who tried to do it and boy, they were in for a rude awakening because these shows make it glamorous. Oh, we're turning profit, but so easy. Oh yeah, yeah it's I bought like, this house for ten dollars and I sold it for three hundred thousand. Oh God, yeah, you 50, know, fifty thousand in. But the thing they don't show you is you better have contractors or a work crew of your own. But one of the big things is permits, permits, ordinances. Yeah. They show everything glamour, but there's a lot of stuff. I mean, you hear, and I know some people who built things without the proper permitting that cities requiring them to tear it down. I mean, there are so many other little things that are hidden, and sometimes it's, you know, misguiding people. And I'll, I'll say this, because I'm a big old car nut, and I've refurbished and built cars 30-something years. I love them to death. And it's kind of like the same thing. You see Barrett Jackson, Meacham, you see all these car auctions on TV and these cars are selling, you know, six figures. But a lot of people don't realize what all went into those. So when you go to approach somebody to buy a car that's not at that condition, they think their cars are worth that much. Even junkers that, you know, might be worth three, $4,000 but it's going to take 30 or 40 to bring it up to where, you know, some people want. But these people watch these shows and it's like, oh, no, I just seen it on Barry Jackson. It just sold for <laughs> 80-something thousand. You want to give me 10? And that's the same thing with, the, you know, the housing market and flipping. They, they make it look glamorous, but they don't see the work and the preparation and the detail that goes into stuff but also the legality things that are there. You know, you might buy a house, say, oh, I'm going to add this other room. Come find out once you start, there's an ordinance. Because one of the things that we got a particular area that they're trying to commercialize. And we had sat in a meeting with a group of people and several of them think their houses are worth a lot more. And, you know, having done this a lot, I was kind of like the advocate for our realtor, too, putting it all together. And I says, here's the thing, folks. It's not commercial. If it was already zoned commercial, yeah, but then you'd be paying a lot more taxes. It's still residential. Yeah, and that until it gets zoned commercial means nothing. And they don't take into account because we had a couple of them thought their houses were worth, you know, 
something you'd buy in Beverly Hills. But, you know, it's like I told them, I says, they got to be able to calculate all the processing, all the detailed work that they have to do from a legal stand, MPC, all that. They're encountering all those costs. And people don't see that. It's kind of like anything else. They watch shows, they see this, they hear this, but they don't hear the details that's in the pudding. And they can be laid astray. And you find a lot of people that, you know, they jump in it and they think this, that, and the other. And honestly, we thought we had a deal put together and had a couple of them just kind of fell through the cracks and deal fell because, you know, Thought it was worth way more, but, you know, it's not commercial yet. There's two sides to a lot of this stuff that people just see the good. Just like with opening up Yaya's Kitchen. I mean, there's a dark side. If we went in there expected to make money first year, two years, hell, we'd there be close. Yeah. Exactly. You got to be in it for the long haul. And the same thing with the real estate market, you know. Flipping is wonderful. It looks good. Yeah, there could be money, but you better have people you can trust, contractors you can trust. Because nowadays, my God, you know, finding people that could do honest work is scary because some of them want money up front. They get that money and they disappear. I mean, it, it's a scary business when you're going in there based on watching on TV. Like I said, you better know about ordinances, permitting, licensing, things like that. And you better know your budgets and have contractors pricing, not just assume. And granted, there's a lot of people who've done well with it because they have those resources. They've learned, but you better be prepared for the pitfalls because there is. And you know, you don't, you're going to break some eggs before you're going to make that pound cake. I mean, when we were sampling things at Yaya's and bringing in all these products and all, man, we paid for a lot of stuff that didn't do well. But it's a trial and error thing, like with anything else. But you got to be mentally prepared for all the downfalls because everything, you know, could be showing glitzy and one of the funny things I was watching this new show my wife likes watching these home improvement shows and they were showing a, a water line that was going under the sidewalk and all of a sudden they were like oh my god this is going to set our budget back because the, the line is going under the sidewalk and in the street and that was the main water line I'm sitting there thinking I said that shouldn't cost you nothing because until where the water meter is, that's your property line. And I don't think your water meter is out in the middle of the street. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But the city owns from the water meter yeah. towards the So a lot of times there. when you buy a property, you think all that nice grass out front yours, you better go look where the water meter is because that's usually where the actual property line is. The city or the county, wherever you're at, gives you that land to the road until they need it. But your actually property is where pretty much where that water meter is. And I was watching this, and they're saying, "Oh my God, this is a big setback." And I'm like, "Hell, the you're at the edge of the sidewalk. Your damn meter's not there." But yet on TV, 
they were trying to play it up, dramatize all this new expense of the waterline. And that's why I said, you better know more and be careful what you're getting into. Because if you don't have a background and you just jump out there, you better be prepared for pitfalls and learning experience that can be very detrimental to your finances and leave you really hanging. At least have some kind of background or read up or listen to Josh's podcast <laughs> and listen to people who've been, you know, experienced different things and take all that in. But I say too, don't take that as gospel. These are experiences people get live experiences through their own experiences. But God's plan for everybody is different. Exactly. And that's why, you know, when we're going through this thing, I keep reverting back to things that I encountered at the port, different people. Those are things you learn and you get better as long as you learn from your mistakes. If you go back and do it again, you don't learn. It's just going to basically really put you in the, the dump for sure. But, you know, take everything, you know, with a grain of salt, listen, and you decipher. But use those things and apply it as with anything you do, whether you're doing, you know, like real estate, flipping, apartment renting, or even attempting to open up a new business. You know, you got to be ready for the pitfalls and look at the long haul. But, you know, the old saying goes too, no risk, no reward. But it'll test your mettle. What's the um, what's the worst real estate experience you've had? Like, because you guys own quite a few, which I really would like to get into that story. I know we're getting kind of short on time here, but um, let's just start out. What's the worst real estate experience you've had? The worst. The worst. And how did you overcome it? I mean, it's kind of hard to say. It, now, as far as you say real estate, I can say that we had a house that we had rented to what apparently was some decent kids in college. They were not your, you know, what you thought kids that partied a lot. They were more like kids that were like honor student types. So we rented it to them. It was a couple of them, and apparently they got to the point they were, you know, trying to get another roommate. Mm -hmm. And one thing led to the other. They did get another roommate while they were at school. Their other roommate was bringing people in. And then not too long afterwards, I found out, I got a call from the police department. And they said, well, we had an incident over at your house. Some people were fighting, involving fighting over a girl, and knives were used, but fortunately no one was killed or seriously injured. And then I'm starting to look into it and come to realize, okay, they were overwhelmed too. And I tell a lot of people who have roommates now, I said, you better be careful who you bring in. Oh, yeah. You better know who they are. And the thing is, while they were in school, they were bringing in, apparently they were uh, <laughs> having a hangout, and they were all, several of their 
other friends of the friend that they brought in, they basically were doing drugs. Mm -hmm. Then I found out shortly after that that uh, uh, was a child ser uh, services were looking for. They came by there. Apparently, some girl was hiding out there with a baby. So finally, had them all evicted. And boy, that was that used to be a process. But fortunately, things have gotten a lot better since then. Whereas back then it took forever to get somebody evicted. Now it's a you know a week or so processed, and then some people know how to use the system, and they all apply for a judgment. They get another week. They don't show up for court. They're just buying time. But we finally got them out. We went in there. My God, they broke all the damn gum windows. The house was so trashed. I even called a couple of cleaning service people that did basic big removals they wasn't even touch it what it was that bad. i mean it was that bad and even the sheriff's office were like never seen nothing this bad i mean they literally holes in the wall where apparently you can tell fists were going through fighting and whatnot they ripped the ducking out of the the central main part in the where the filter goes out of the ceiling i mean we're talking it was probably 20 years ago, 15, 18, 20 years ago. We took a lot of pictures. Cause that was one thing I learned when I worked at the port. You take a lot of pictures when you have accidents and things. So I remember we went to magistrate court, finally found them. And interesting enough, the, one of the kids' parents were pretty well off. But basically the fact that he was over 21, even though they showed up for court, they weren't responsible for him, even though they came there. So we went to court, and the judge looked at the pictures. I told him what happened, what we found, showed him pictures. And like I said, this is about 20 years ago, and they had done well over $10,000 in damages. Holy cow. I mean, it was like tornado went through it. So the judge gave the, the tenant the opportunity to state his case. And judge was looking through the pictures and all. He just posted in the middle of the tenant explaining. He said, just stop, just stop, forget it. He says, I'm looking at these pictures. And then a thing you can say is going to convince me differently. He says, this is, I've never seen nothing this bad. And then the fact that we have police report from the damage and, and the fact that they had left a dog in there. We had to call animal control. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Had to call animal control to come get the dog out because it was an abandoned dog in the house too. So yeah, it was bad. And fortunately, the judge at the time, basically he convicted them for the 10 grand, gave us judgment. But then... As happy as we were to get a judgment, it all got soured real quick because then it was like, okay, you got a judgment. And my attorney, he basically, now here comes the fun part, is getting that money. Yeah. He said, yeah, we got a judgment for 10 grand, but here it is. You got this kid or two kids. One of them disappeared, but we found the one. Yeah, his parents have got the funds to probably pay for his damage, but 
they're not claiming him because he did it on his own, but yet they were there supportive. And we tried to set up a thing to get reimbursement, even set up a payment plan. Never seen a damn penny of that. Which I think that's common. My, um, my stepdad had some motorcycles stolen from one of his properties, and they found the kids, and the kids had already stole, or had sold the motorcycles already. And they might have, I don't think they ever recovered the motorcycles, but they were able to prove somehow the kids had sold them, right? Anyway, so they got a judgment against the kids for $7,000. That was 15 years ago. And that's the other thing I would say when you're getting into real estate, especially when you're doing apartments or buying real estate to rent. Yeah. Granted, there's a lot of methods nowadays where you can screen people, see if they've had evictions, you can get, you know, required check their paychecks, go online and get their permission to do background checks and stuff like that, which is very helpful. But back then, you didn't have many avenues. And one of the nice things I can say, I want to say it was when uh, Judge Moss took over, they implemented uh, where you can go on Chatham County Court Records online and put people's names in. And find And find But if they were from out of county, it was a little... But that was like the one of the baby steps of trying to screen people but you know this was right when the internet was still in its infancy how did you decide back in the day how would you have decided like in the 90s right like how did you how did you know who was good and who was going to be bad you just kind of (laughs) well doing it for a while you start picking up tendencies but one of the things i found is references but you had to be careful reference. And fortunately, you know, having worked in HR, we used to reference back then before you had all this technology, you can find a lot more stuff on people. But you would call and do references. And it's funny that even with the references, you had to be real careful. It was almost like you had to develop, excuse me, a rapport for what you're looking for, a judge of character. Now, a couple of things I know, I've had several people say, man, you should write a book on all this. Yeah, Crazy experiences. And I said, well, one thing I can say, a couple of things that I learned way back in the day, and this was a, this was a funny story. We had a lady wanting to see the house at night. And my dad, you know, being the old school, old school guy, guy he said, you know, people got cash, you rent it. Yeah, if you got money, that means they got money. They can afford it. So some lady called. We went and showed the house about 7 o'clock that night. And this was more in the fall when it was starting to get dark about the time. So we get over there, meet the lady. She was real pleasant. And she was really what I call a holy roller. You know, when they get out the car and they're like, God sent me here. Praise Jesus meeting y'all. All that. I'm like, Okay, you know, I'm an Orthodox Christian. I believe in God, Jesus, the whole gamut. But, you know, I believe in miracles and all, but let's, let's, let's let you look at the place and we'll go from there. <laughs> so, went in, looked at it. She didn't seem to want to really look at it. You know, a lot of times people go in and they start looking at things, looking at closet, looking at bathrooms, looking at the appliances. She was ready to give out the money. And I was sitting there, and I think I was early 20s. I was just really getting into it with my dad. 
she offered him the rent and the deposit. And my dad took it. And I looked at him that night. I got home. I said, you know, it was just something. I got a gut feeling. Something just ain't right. I said, it seems like I've heard her name before. Well, what made it funny, I called my aunt. Because she had a couple rentals. And it was funny. I says, you know this name? And then she says, talk to my, talk to your cousin. So I talked to her. And he says, oh, yeah. She's the lady that rents from us now. We're evicting her. Dang. And she owes us like a thousand, almost fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars. She owes like a two months rent and the eviction stuff. I said, oh, I know where she is. She's over here trying to rent from dad. And dad kind of agreed to rent to her. And uh, I told my dad, she said, oh, I didn't. I said, I thought that name, her name sounded familiar. And my cousin was getting mad. He said, hell, why is she wanting to pay y'all when she just pay us and keep her place? Yeah. Why would she? I can't. I don't know what's in the mind of so many people. Even nowadays, you see it. You makes you wonder what the heck were they thinking. So Dad gave her the money back and said, "Hey, you you're in the process of being evicted. You lied to us." So that was uh, one of those stories about trying to figure out who to rent. But you know, things have changed. You got more access to a lot. But we were doing that county thing, seeing who had evictions, but. Yeah, a lot of times you it's almost like you formulate. You get better as things happen. So from then on, it was more or less you pretty much see where they're working. And one thing I'll share this is a little tip for people. When I worked at the port the time before, you know, you had all these search engines and things like that when the Internet was just really. One of the things I learned when you were screening an applicant, it was like, look at how many jobs they've had in the last year or two. If you've seen somebody that's had like three or four jobs, they're job hunting or job jumping. Yeah. And it's the same thing with tenants that I found, you know, before a lot of this. And one of the things I still look at is look where they work and how long they've worked. Now, here we are talking about funny stories and something else things you got to be careful with i actually called the job for one person that was looking to rent and uh i says is this so-and-so they say yeah who's this i said this is uh so-and-so calling to verify who oh yeah 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 come to find out it was a relative they uh. said they gave uh, a business name said, this is my supervisor. And come to find out it was a relative that they gave. Because you can tell she was talking in general. Didn't even say so-and-so what company that supposedly. Because you got to look for the little red flags in there a lot of times. You know, you got to be cautious. And like I said, I attribute a lot of that because of my background. Being cautious about little things I pick up. And that was one of the things... Because <clears throat> a lot of times when you call a job, it's like, oh, this Walmart, can I help you or whatever? And it was a cousin. Then, on top of that, talking about checking, another thing I would do is what I would say 
the old school kind of way before all this technology. A lot of people you'd put on there, where are your current address? So one of the things I realized with technology and internet, and then this thing called Sages, I would take the address where they lived and see what they say they're paying for rent. I go to Sages and look up the house. And I actually had a, a person give me an address. I looked it up on Sages and it was a condemned building out in Garden City that was boarded up. And she said she'd been living here for the last three years or so. So those are little things you learn and you become more receptive. Okay, how can I stay ahead of this little game with tenants and people? Because before the internet and having all these available information, you know, there was a it was an art to getting around finding decent tenants. And then when you did find someone, you look at their job history and you know, you look at just in general how they conducted themselves. But a lot of times job history dictated a lot as to because you didn't have the ability to check into financials like now you get permission and all like that. So you got pretty clever and you developed little things, but granted, you still had a lot of people. Oh, someone come there with cash. And when they came there with cash and having done this, then you get a red flag. Because usually if they come there with cash, they're trying to entice you to get the place, which means there's probably something going on somewhere else. Or they're getting evicted or something. And especially when they come in there and they start bringing in God into the picture that he brought me here. Okay, something. You know, you get to the point you realize red flags. You find the consistency in good tenants and the consistency in Yeah, you know. it's like with anything else. Practice makes perfect. Yeah. And learn from your mistakes and apply them as you move forward but like i said fortunately now you got the internet you got all these different search things i thought one of the coolest things back then when i worked in hr at the port was uh where you can do you know background checks where they were hiring certain employees for certain positions especially with police officers you check your history and this is on a national database back then when it was all new but now it's like you have so much access and even with all that access you know you can have five or six good candidates and you know don't always look at the financials sometimes you know financials could be misleading because a lot of times they look at oh what's your credit score i mean credit score and ethic granted some people can have had a bad experience somewhere or some tragedy in their life and they get dinged for it but does that mean they haven't come through it and you know they, they deserve just as much an opportunity to be able to move into a place or whatnot and I know with my own experience you know when we were starting Yaya's Kitchen trying to get funds to continue to get past these beginning stages and all Granted, you have assets, and it's funny how a lot of banks, lenders view things. 
And granted, they have their criteria, but it's one of them things, you know, things weren't perfect. Granted, we had assets, but you didn't have that liquidity. And as you move forward, you change things around. We, you know, sold some things, but we made things happen. But you got to have that ability to adjust. If you don't, you dead in the water in most cases. So take it one step at a time. <laughs> Are you still? Um, so I know you'd said that you started with twenty-two, or at the height you had twenty-two, and then now you're you had kind of cut back to twelve. Are you guys looking at buying anything more in the future, or? Well. Or you just kind of Here's one of, the, one of the things, yeah, it's not, I don't rule nothing out. But at the same time, it's one of them things in our experiences, because some of the properties my parents had purchased back then were cheap. And it's like anything else, you just never know what the market's. And one of the properties that helped us get to that height at that time was one that was bought real cheap in the downtown area. And all of a sudden when downtown started booming, especially over there where the market is, we had the opportunity to sell a place. And with that place, we sold it and turned four properties in it because we did the tax exchange. Okay, 1031. So that's how we kind of got to that peak. And then, you know, after that, had to get some daughters married off. <laughs> so a couple of them had to go towards, you know, weddings and other things. And at the same time, you know, the markets had changed to the point of getting up in age. We got into Yaya's kitchen. Um, you know, some of my kids are kind of doing some real estate stuff, but at the same time, the game's changed to the point like, okay, it's aggravating. Why? Just having property sometimes. Yeah. You know, like I said, I used to be able to do a lot of the maintenance work and work on them. And now physically I'm not able to do a lot of these things. And it makes it tougher. And, you know, with this new age, some of your kids, you know, they got their own jobs, own lives. See, where with me, I was kind of like, groomed into it too even though i had another full-time job i was the only child but i was groomed into it whereas now you know there's so many other opportunities my kids have that same ability to be you know they were kind of groomed into it but you know everybody has their own personal decision so what do you do you know you can overrun yourself have a lot of headaches because if you think doing property management and rentals is a cakewalk, uh, it's not. Yeah. I mean, there's work involved. I mean, and here's one of the things, again, we talk about things that people are not aware of. And I guess in our conversation, trying to expose people to things, just keep one thing in mind. A lot of people work day jobs. They don't get off at till five. They get home at five thirty, and then they call the landlords. Oh, I got this going on. I'm here at work. A lot of people don't want you going into their houses 
unless they're there. Right. They, they give you they, like specific times to come right. fix their problem. And you got to set, and then yeah. you got a problem. And a lot of times, these problems happen when they get home, and they want it. Oh, I'm here now. You can come check it. Yeah, it's like six o'clock. And <laughs> it just seems like, of all things, of all things, and being you know in Savannah. It's hot down here, especially our summers. Yeah. Heat indexes get up high. And lo and behold, it just seems like air conditioners go out on the weekends. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. Weekends and nights. And then, you know, your tenants call. What are you going to do? I need my air conditioner. I mean, it's a lot of headache. It's a lot of work. And that's why, you know, a lot of it goes a long way having the right people on your crew and that's why you find more businesses or more people turning their properties to property management which i was going to ask you about have you thought about doing that ever or? i tinkered with it yeah but i guess being somewhat old school i felt well maybe if i had less houses i could better manage it versus having more and trying to manage them all Maybe you should try the Yaya's way. Just like take like three houses and set them aside. Just try a different manager on each three. Yeah. And see what happens after a year. Well, <laughs> you know, I can say we experimented a little bit with it. But then when you look at the cost of it. Yeah. 10% is a lot. And, you know, I guess the part that really threw me for a curve when I looked into some was, all right, place gets vacant. Then you pay like four or $500 to uh, find a... A tenant. It stops. Sorry. Okay. That was weird. All right. Sorry about that. Technical difficulties. But we're back. Um, we're kind of getting near the end anyway, so I guess it kind of like worked out because um, I'm kind of I'm running out of time. But um, what were we? Ta- I can't even remember what were we talking about before we went down. Do I'm trying to remember myself. <laughs> <laughs> you start getting my age. You liable to forget things. Um, were you talking about your future in real estate? We were talking about things changing a little bit. Um, yeah, I'm drawing blank. <laughs> yeah, I'm drawing blank too. That's okay. Um, so, what? How did you? So, you, all your training as far as like what to do was just trial and error, than whatever your parents taught you. Yeah. And then, has there been anything else like that you've done? Do you follow anybody? Do you listen to anybody? Like. When you're growing up at all, were you ever into like, um, like a Zig Ziglar or like anything like that? Any of those kind of guys? Nope. Just I said back then I kind of did this with my dad, filling in, doing maintenance. I used to do all the repair stuff. That was his thing after he retired, which you know the properties were more or less his retirement thing. So you know I worked, but you know it changed course on me because of. You know, my dad passing away, and he, they already had these properties, and that's kind of when I got in it, and now it's like I'm taking it a different direction. You know, it's one of them things right now with the markets the way they are, the headaches, and now I think I'm kind of getting back on track. We were talking about real estate managers. Oh, yeah, we're management companies. Yeah. And, uh, but that was one of the things, too, with the management besides the 10% was um, finder's fees. It was like four and $500. I'm saying, well, what happens if you find a, a renter and I'm paying you that four or $500 plus the 10%, which that's separate. And then five months later, the tenant leaves 
Are you going to track him down to get that? It's like... I always felt like it should be reversed. People should be rewarded more for, for new lease, you know, lease renewals than yeah. brand new leases. And that was just it. I said, what happens if they leave? And you have to get another tenant in five or six months. So I still have to pay you another $500 finder's fee. So a lot of them operate like this. And, you know. So with that being said, it's like, okay, I just work with less properties. Manage them myself between me and my wife. And then, you know, now we got Yaya's Kitchen going. It's doing well. Is it where we really want it? Not quite yet. I mean, like with anything else, this downturn, downturn with uh, COVID really hit. But, you know, fortunately, our model is allowing us to survive and keep going. Matter of fact, uh, we lost a couple of employees because uh, they were fearful. But, yeah, they were working part-time. They were much older ladies. Uh, they decided, you know, that was it. But that's when the family jumped in. So my son's working there. My, my daughter moved back from New York because New York got crazy. Everybody's exiting New York. Everybody. But oh, yeah. She's, have- she moved down, brought the grandkids, and my son's going to, you know, here too, or son-in-law, he's here. He kind of does some maintenance, but he's kind of an IT kind of guy, which helps. But, you know, it's kind of been a family thing, but um, trying to focus more on Yaya's Kitchen as a, a business model. The, the houses are still good, yeah. We might be looking at taking one of our commercial places that we got because where it's located, you know, the market's really high, so it's one of them things, okay, Maybe now's the time to sell it and buy some more properties, more manageable places. And that's kind of like with one of the other places that was near city market. We sold that at the right time. Granted, if we'd kept it another 15 or so years, we probably could have doubled the money. But we sold it, managed to buy four properties. It's more like residential properties that are easier to manage. So... That's one of the things, yeah, we're not ruling it out. There's a possibility we might be doing that with one of the commercials that we have. But, you know. How about Yaya's number two? Well, that's the other thing. Right now, it seems like with my daughter, my son, who's taken into it, the business, you know, I feel like we've built a, a decent brand name. Yeah. Uh, also, we've got our partnerships secured with. Uh, our main vendors, which, you know, Kronos is on board. That's our big one. We know Euros. We got uh, Athenian Foods on board, Grecian Delights on board, Hellas, Krenos. So It's the dream squad. So we got all our authentic products. Right. They're locked in. We're, it didn't happen overnight. It's like a lot of people say, why aren't you at the shop much anymore? I said, well, I'm doing all the background work. As uh, George used to say at the report, he says, I only make six or seven, maybe ten decisions a year, but my decisions can impact your income in this company. That's the truth, yeah. And he said, you know, that's where micromanaging and macro comes in. And I guess having him as a mentor on a lot of things, 
I tend to macro. I'm more big picture. I won't get involved on daggum detail. But it's that part of any business. You know, two people spend so much daggum time on the little things. And that can easily, you get absorbed into it and you miss that big picture and it can become detrimental. So my wife, she handles that little stuff. Our staff having family in it now more so. They're handling the little stuff. I'm out creating the big stuff. So with that being said, you know, who's to say, you know, I'd love to take this business into other parts of, not Savannah, but, you know, I've had some people say, oh, you need to open one up in Hinesville. Need yeah. one in Richmond Hill, Statesboro. The nice thing is, too, like I tell a lot of people, and I'll tell anybody in any business, it's easy to take jumps. You see businesses, and you probably know of businesses, they, they started out booming, and they just kept growing, growing, and then they all faltered. I mean, there's several businesses that people know here in, in just the Savannah area. They had four or five places, and now they're back down to one. Some of them ain't even around. So, yeah, it's easy to jump, but my model, my thought process is like, if you're going out into the woods to go hunting, or if you're going out to the river to go fishing, you better be prepared. If you're not fully prepared, you're just wasting your time. And it's so easy to go out there and carry your pole and your hook and not have the right kind of bait. Or you go out into the woods and all of a sudden you go out there looking to, you know, shoot at duck and a bear comes on you, you know? Yeah. But so many businesses, they jump into things without thinking things through and it comes back to become a detriment. So with Yaya's, yeah, everybody's like, do it, do it, do it, do it. Well, yeah, I already took that first step. We built it, but it's like, I'd love to take it. And believe me, you know, if there's anybody interested in trying to expand on what we're doing, we've got the model pretty much built, all the stuff in place. But before you can move forward, you better have all your ducks in a row. And like now, you know, all our vendors and things like that, kind of like if you want to do house flipping, before you go do it, you better have your contractors and people you can trust and have all your resources ready and possibly a legal team. Yeah. Because nowadays with permits and ordinances, you better have a legal team. I mean, you look at all these things you see on TV with these developers and people going in front of NPC. They think they got it licked, and then the, the neighborhood comes out against you, you know, based on what you're going to build. So I know a great lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, always a plus. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's uh, you, you better have your ducks in a row, and you better have a, a supportive team you can trust. Just like with Yaya's, you know, it was build the brand. Yeah, I've had my family and employees ready to Let's go jump. We're ready. We're ready. No, don't jump. You better make sure you got everything in order. Same thing with um whether you're going to do apartments or flipping houses, 
You better have all your ducks in order. It will be expensive quick. Oh, yeah. And especially with your situation specifically, anywhere you go, you're going to have to pay rent at the next place. Unless you, you know, pay cash for a building. But, like, if you're going to go to Pooler, those places aren't available for cash, right? How many places are there left in, for commercial you can just pay cash somewhere in Pooler at a reasonable price, right? Exactly. Or Richmond Hill, too, right? It's kind of the same situation. So I think uh, that adds a little bit of stress on having that second location. Well, see, one thing, too. The fact that we have a lot of the distribution kind of situated now, it's one of them things like my wife says, oh, I don't want to go down this road. We're getting too old for this. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, the model, I kind of try to patent things under successful models. That's why I said, listen, learn, watch what others are doing. And for those who are kind of aware with like Chick-fil-A, you mentioned them earlier. In order to get a franchise, you have to have worked it yeah. and fully understand it in order to give them the right to a franchise. And you have to have a good character. Like they test all these different things. Like it, one single thing is off, you're done. And they'll pull it, no it, problem. Yeah. yeah. And that's the, to me, I think that's a very successful model. I think the proof's in the pudding. Go to any Chick fil A, and if you don't see a line wrapped around the Seriously. building, something's wrong. Yeah. Unless it's Sunday. But, uh, <laughs> but that's the same thing with, like with Yaya's. It's one of the things, okay, we've kind of got everything built. But if I do expand, that would be cool. I'd love to do that and open up another place. But yet I feel like anything else. I think we've built a strong enough model. And especially now, and I say this because so many other restaurants, people who've had small businesses, who've been in the food industry, the models they had based on doing indoor dining and stuff collapsed under all this COVID. And I'm sure they're great people, they're good managers, but given the circumstances of what we've gone through, it's not that they're a failure, it's the times created the failure. But with the model we've built, it's very possible that, you know, if somebody came and approached us and say, hey, if it's a, uh, you know, a couple or just some family members, I'm open to the idea if we expand it to give opportunity. But it's got to like, you know, I'm not one that's going to put everything out there. I mean, you got to have uh, some skin in the game. Yeah. And right now, given the situation, I think, you know, once we get out of this, if there's people wanting, our, I feel our model and niche market and quality of product will sell itself. But it was one of the things we haven't really pushed or promoted till we got all the anchors in place. So with that being said, you know, somebody comes along and says, hey, we've owned a restaurant and you're looking for a model that's kind of more scaled that you can easily open. Because the way we're set up, you don't have to have these extraordinary kitchens and all these big expenses that goes into a restaurant and then depend on indoor we were structured to be more to go and have some indoor eating but also it's about the environment with the people that you serve in the area and that goes a long way and that's kind of what we're hoping to kind of see where this thing goes with yaya's kitchen uh we tried this a while back, and unfortunately, things didn't quite work out. 
because there was a conflict of uh, interests. I'll just kind of leave it at that. It's like, here's what we do. And then it's like, oh, yeah, I want to do it. But then you start trying to manipulate our model and start to incorporate certain things yeah. that are not the not, brand. Not the brand, but at the same time, you're getting away. Yeah, it's like we built this on certain brand recognitions, quality. And yeah, like any place you go, a lot of times you go to some place you're used to something, then it tastes different because. Things have changed because of price. Now, granted, I will say, and I'm sure a lot of people don't realize this, I know with all this COVID back in the beginning, a lot of manufacturers had shut down. A lot of food places had shut down. And getting products was extremely hard. And believe me, I know a lot of you know businesses that kind of suffered through that, trying to get product because I can speak from experience because our products that we have are not your run of the mill. And our tzatziki and our Greek yogurt that came from Canada, oh my Lord, we were in a hurting. We were having to make our own tzatziki using what was available, but we still didn't use sour cream. We used yogurt. Wasn't the original stuff, but we tried to stay true to what we were, but all that was due to COVID, but fortunately, you know, now a lot's going back into place. Even one of our most popular selling cheesecakes, which was a pecan praline, we were without that for a couple of months because I spoke with my food vendor and they're supposedly able to get it again. What? We were just talking two weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. And they are now, and that was due to all this COVID, not having enough people working these facilities because you got, you know, allergies. And when you're making cheesecakes, then you go to nuts because you have people who have allergens towards nuts and things. So the actual cleaning process of the equipment to get any cross contamination out of that. So a lot of them basically, all right, we're not doing cheesecakes with nuts. We're just sticking to the simple cheesecake. And that's what you were finding. And that's, you know, what a lot of businesses were going through and having to alter menus because of availability and all. But things are, you know, have come back. We're fortunate we're still getting our products. And, yeah, it's been a month. We're still getting able to get our tzatziki and our real Greek yogurt in and, Along with that, one of the things we found out too is recent delights is just merged with uh, Kronos. So uh, I'm assuming that's a good thing with them, but I know for us that gives us more uh, a wine range because we use both of them. So now they're, they've come together and they've been very helpful. And it's more or less, as you go through a lot of this stuff, partnerships goes a long way, but you gotta, you know, Find out what works. I mean, I give a shout out to Coke. They've been great here for us too. They partnered in. They give us good service. And what, like Coca Cola? Yeah, oh, Coca Cola. Okay. Yeah, yeah, not the not the white powdery no, stuff. No, I but just to sugar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I figured not. But I, I just wanted to clarify, right? Like yeah, Coca-Cola. but Coke, uh, Coca Cola here locally, they've been wonderful. You know, they've helped us in a lot of ways. We've partnered in. We're kind of loyal to them. So, you know, some loyalty with certain brands, 
you partner in, just like with it, you know, realtors and talking about flippers, they partner in with people. But you got to be careful. Like I say, we know when we try to expand Yaya's, <laughs> yeah, it all looked rosy up front, but then afterwards it was like, okay, they had a whole different picture. And it's like, nope, that doesn't work. So that's the same thing with people who do flipping. I know some contractors and some independent guys who do whether it's plumbing, electrical, they partnered in and, uh, you know, sometimes that greed kind of sets in. And you probably well know several contractors who had people do work for them and work for them and then they filed bankruptcy and so you gotta you gotta find your your limits but that trust factor it's you know and as close to friends and one thing i'd say too to be careful you know you have friends you go into business with friends but one thing be careful about going into business with cousins and relatives oh yeah i mean i know a, a, a crazy story from way back when there was a a greek family restaurant <coughs> here in savannah we talking probably 35 so years, maybe 40 but uh it was all family he was building up a decent little reputation then they brought family members from the old country and then they discovered this thing called the cash register and it was funny because he was, you know, after it was all said and done, the business built up, brought family members from Greece. And not after a year or so, it seemed like the business just shut down. Doors were closed and he disappeared. But apparently, you know, just from rumor mill, it was like, yeah, you had all these relatives and there was this thing called the cash register. And every time somebody needed money, they thought that was like a free bank. Yep. And they couldn't understand why the place was losing money. Sometimes and, yeah. your family is the first to get you. Well, which... you know, I can speak from experience because I know many, many years ago I was a small kid. When my great uncle, who started the properties, and we had my dad had a blue collar business. It was a bar, and we had a confectionery store. That's where I grew up behind a bar, <laughs> selling past Blue Ribbon and playing pool on weekends and listening to Hank Williams on the jukebox, the original Hank Williams. And at the time, you know, the business was getting better. I had a couple of places that were available to go commercial to do business. So at the time, my great-uncle's getting up in age. My dad decided him, all right, we'll bring your brother over. So they brought the brother over, brought his wife over, brought his three kids, and a wife of one of the kids. And it was interesting, while they were here within a half a year, my aunt was going to my great-uncle and said, well, what are you going to leave us? He's like, what do you mean I won't leave you? Granted, he was 90-something years old at the time. What do you mean I won't leave you? So they all came with the intent to what they can get. Right. And, you know, talking about wisdom. My great uncle, when it was all said and done, after he passed, and here it is, my uncle and his family was like, what did we get in the will? And they just came over. It wasn't like two years and they were already looking, so it was interesting when they did the will, they found out that my great uncle, the two properties he left the nephew, my dad's brother, 
he secured them and left it under my dad's care, but also that they could not sell the properties for at least 25 years Dang. without my dad's uh, uh, permission. Right. Ooh, they got so mad. They all packed up, went back to Greece. Really? But they all came with the intent. My dad took care of the places for them. Yeah. And granted, he didn't even charge them a commission. But it's like, you know, they were both probably in their 60s at the time. 50s, late, uh, late 50s. And you would think even at that point, bring them over here, which I remember having gone to Greece at that time. There were several parts of Greece that still had outhouses. Really? And my family, my dad's side, lived up in the mountains, and they had outhouses. I'm like, we brought you to America. Granted, I was about eight years old at the time. They brought you to America, provided you to try to get you into business, and all you cared about is what you can get and take. And fortunately, my dad was not a a revengeful type person. And one of the properties, believe it or not, is where the Drayton Tower parking garage was. There used to be a bar there. Really? Yeah, and the city at the time was expanding downtown and uh, the city wound up buying that property from my brother or my uh, dad's brother. My dad signed off and they came over and they made good money for that time because it was, you know, a property that the city needed for parking downtown. Do you know how much they paid? Uh, I believe at that time it was somewhere just below six figures. Okay. About, That's uh, crazy to think about. Isn't about it? 80, about 90. I think the, the value, because it was, you know, all that was still kind of somewhat commercial. But it was pretty much probably about ten grand more than fair market. I want to say at the time. That's crazy. Think about what it'd be worth right now. If they oh, know. I mean, it's we're crazy. talking. What was it? Uh, early '80s now, because my, you know, they had moved back for years. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Should have, would have, could have. I mean, but it was just sad that you know they came with a different purpose, and I say that. From experience, when you're dealing with relatives, when money comes into play, businesses come into play. Things sour. Very easily, very quickly. You know, I just cautious. Sometimes I tell people I'd rather deal, make, do business with people and friends versus family, because all it takes is one event, and then all of a sudden you go from family to enemies. He's no more Thanksgiving dinner together. No, seriously, know? yeah, it's sad. So, yeah, it's sad, but it does happen. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd be very cautious. Sometimes it's best to just stay out of business with family. When I say family, I'm talking about, like, your kind of outside family. Yeah. But even your kids, you know, and I start to say that they're all <laughs> angels. Everybody has their own motivation. So. Yeah, that's the truth. But, you know, these are just pitfalls, things you... You don't think about it at times because everything looks rosy. Just like talking about house flipping and all these wonderful things, money makers. They all look good, but no one really shows you or says and tells you about the dark side of things. Just like Star Wars, you know, Luke Skywalker, everything is wonderful. Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda. But there's always that dark side. Which it doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it, but maybe plan accordingly. Oh, yeah. Like... I think that a lot of these guys that are on the internet and stuff that are selling that 
that dream of with no pitfalls are really doing everybody a disservice, right? All these guys that are just coming in that are, that see that and they think, oh, it's so easy. Like I'll be a millionaire next week. Oh, they're and becoming millionaires because they're selling you their idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're making them. I a millionaire. mean, yeah. I, we laugh about it, and I said, I don't know how you are, but. I remember back when it was still black and white TV. One thing I remember, you talk about all these, you know, TV preachers and all. Yeah. I remember right before wrestling, it used to come on Saturday nights. And it was uh, Reverend Knight. He went from selling a, a blessed coin to a blessed cloth. I said, hey, a good speaker, a good motivator who can motivate people that buy stuff. I mean, we laugh about it, but you sit there nowadays, you watch late at night. I mean, everything under the sun's invented, and it's not the best of quality. They sell it on TV. They get you to think that's what you need. And, yeah, these motivational-type speakers and flippers that have these shows, oh, absolutely. They're making money. If they're not making money doing it, they're making money. Making you feel good about doing it. So well, that and stuff. you buying into the idea. Yeah, right well, we're going to sell you this package, dirt cheap, and we're going to guide you through. Once they get that money, I mean, you've seen it. A lot of people have seen it. You, you've had different products like Amway. you got like all these pyramid-type buildings. you got to get all these people under you. But, yeah, they're the ones making money because they're trying to sell you this idea. And then once you buy it, you know, it's kind of like traveling salesmen back in the, you know, early 1800s come through and then product breaks. Uh-oh. Out that money. I um I don't remember which podcast it was. It might have been Gary Vee. They were talking about uh, this kid who started a service teaching people how to get girlfriends, young men to get girlfriends. He charged three, uh, the lowest package was 80 bucks a month all the way up to $3,000 a month. And he had over 8,000 people paying him every month to put out this content. Oh, yeah. It's crazy to get a girlfriend. Like, that's like people been getting girlfriends for 100,000 years. Well, you need somebody to teach you online? I mean, whatever. More power to you if you pay for it. I'm just saying it's crazy what people are willing to pay for nowadays. Well, I'm trying to remember uh, Carney. Is it Carnegie? What was this saying? There's a sucker born every day. <laughs> yeah, that's the truth, yeah. I'm trying to remember it, but... Uh, yeah, there's a sucker born every day. And it's kind of like, I guess, if you put a different perspective on it, it's kind of like lottery tickets. I, rem I remember people, you know, they go buy lottery tickets looking for that dream. And it's like, yeah, you can buy a lot of tickets. All it takes is one. But, you know, nothing wrong with dreaming. Yeah. But don't plan your whole life around dreaming. Because, you know... You can achieve anything. We have the ability to do a lot, but there's a lot of pitfalls. And that's, I guess, from our perspective as this podcast goes, is making people aware that not everything is gloomy. It's not going to come easy. Yeah. I mean, granted, there's things that do you get lucky on some deals, being at the right place at the right time. Don't get me wrong. That does happen. But it's kind of like people do win the lottery, but what's the odds of that happening yeah, every yeah. day? And, you know, just be aware of whatever you do. Everything interacts, interconnects. You can take 
different things and apply it in different venues, whether you're starting a new business or doing real estate or an investor. But one of the other big things, and you brought this up when you asked the question about where we at with the properties now. What you're seeing too is a lot of older people who bought properties back then. A lot of family members don't want to further it. They don't want to mess with it. They've moved on. They got jobs. So you see all these signs around town. We buy houses. We buy houses. That's we, us. we buy houses. <laughs> and a lot of your market is who? Probably a lot of older people who just don't want to deal with real estate and tenants. Yeah, that's the truth, yeah. Or they get distressed, of yeah, course. Yeah, distressed, yeah. You get those, and, you know, it's one of those things. But I just know a few people who had properties, and they just wind up selling. So, you know, I can't maintain it. Too much headaches. Tenants get in, get out. And when that happens, it's just too much for them. So, you know, granted, you know, people go out and buy a house. And granted, you got some people who are good and they're fair. And then you got some of them and it's like, really? Do I look that stupid? And believe me, yeah, I... I get, yeah. Well, we're, we get a little bit of a used car salesman. I mean, the signs are cheesy. So, um, I don't know if I should say this. I'm going to go ahead and say it. So, our philosophy on the signs is we started, we did the signs for a little bit. But our whole goal is to help people. Right? Yeah. That's why we started this whole thing. And we felt like you really can't help a community that you're actively littering in. So we've kind of stopped this. And we haven't done the signs since the very beginning. Well, even the signs. And like I, like you said, it was more or less to kind of help people get out of binds. Yeah, that's kind of, I mean, like, and we give people options, right? So we've got some realtors and stuff that if, if they want to sell their house on the open market, that is totally fine. Oh, I don't yeah. want to give anybody any wrong numbers or anything. Send them to the realtor. That's for you. But, like. I'm, we offer a solution for a niche of people that want to get rid of, fat, rid of it fast or get rid of it with a tenant or it's in really bad shape and they just want to be done right. or you know what I mean? Oh yeah. I said I know several older folks who've had properties and basically they've sold for a quick just to get out of it. They just don't. And I see that market like yourself. You do this, right? So it's real simple. It's no different than like I said, I'm an old car guy. I love cars, and I know how those markets work. Same thing with the flipping thing. It's kind of like I can sell it myself and advertise it. It's going to take a longer time. I can pay Auto Trader and some of these visual internet sites to help promote my car. And then if I just want to get rid of it and sell it because I'm ready to move on to something now, I take it to auction. Right. So I see a lot of these folks like yourself who buy houses, kind of like the auction. You ready to unload it for whatever reason, whether it's good, bad, whatever. Here's an out. Same thing with car auctions, with old cars. I mean, they have these things at different locations. I know up North Carolina, they have them monthly up there. And it could be three, 400 of them. They take them to auction. I'd had an older car. It's funny we talk about this. I had an older car for many years. It was 1970 Olds 442. Came across a 1933 Studebaker. And it was like, oh man, I've never had a street rod or older style car. I've always had muscle cars that I've built. 
Granted, I had a couple of 56 uh, vehicles. And my wife says, well, in order to buy that, you ain't got no money. But I really wanted it because I was a great deal on it. And then, you know, it just kind of felt like I was in my right place at the right time. So how the hell am I going to get the money to buy that? Just so happened, two weeks from that, and I told the guy, just hold on. They had an auction down in Brunswick. So I took my Cutlass or the 442 down there and sold it. Granted, the car was probably worth about 25, 26 at the time. But they helped negotiate and I wind up taking 20, 21. Well, this is terrible. It wasn't too bad, but you know, when you think 20 years ago, Thousand, two thousand dollars was a little bit more than yeah, it is true. now. Yeah, and at that time, almost four thousand dollars was different, four to five. But it achieved what I needed to do. Right. I was able to get rid of that car, get the money, and go buy the other one I really wanted. Right. So in a roundabout way, like you said, I see a lot of these folks like they're in this house business as that means to out. Yeah. Whether somebody's wanting to move. Or just do away. I'm tired of messing with it. I don't want to fix it. I don't have the means. And that's one of the other things I've encountered with people that I know who sold. It's like, I don't have the contractors. I don't have the time to deal with. Yeah. So it's an easy We're out. Solutions company. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You're a solution to the means of whatever it could be. Uh, I was going to say, I think, though, that like used car salesmen, you know, there are some used car salesmen like are truly passionate about what they do and um, really help people. But you know, it only takes a couple of bad apples, right? And then the whole, it sours the whole bunch, right? Like it makes everybody. Oh, laugh. yeah. I mean, it's, we see that all over in the world right now, right? Like, oh, yeah. Like how prevalent is that in all, you know, the news? So, um, and we're not, we're not. Oh, yeah. All it takes. All. I mean, it'd be the same thing in Greek restaurants, right? Like if. All it takes is a couple of terrible Greek restaurants. People experience that Greek restaurants are like, you know what? I'm never going to a Greek restaurant again. Oh, yeah. it's Everything's different. And that's why I say use your own judgment when it comes to a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, one experience doesn't dictate that's a, a constant experience. Yeah. With other people. there's That's where it separates finding those who work well with others and not. It's just one of those things you live through it and you just continue to march and find those that all play nice together but uh, yeah it's un it's unfortunate but yet what y'all do it's it is a solution I mean if you weren't there what were some people gonna do granted if you weren't in it to make some money the difference what I see with a lot of businesses and folks I believe in making money. That's what that's the American way, American dream. We're in it to make money, and that's what motivates us to, you know, continue doing. But I think you should always take into account some morality into how you approach doing things in business. You know, you got so many people that'll backstab you. I mean, I bought some equipment when we first started from a restaurant place in Florida, found on eBay, had some good deal, spent seven, almost seven grand. And granted, they were reputable and all like this. 
I sent them the money. They sent two things, but the main thing, the freezers and all, they didn't send. And then I filed a police report because the interstate commerce thing had the detectives here locally look into it. Come to find out, he ripped off a bunch of other people. So, you know, those are the pitfalls, you know. But it's like doing business, do it the right way. But even the fact that I got lost money on that deal and got cheated, I don't go around judging people when I do business with others because of that bad experience. And that's kind of, I guess, what we're talking about, a takeaway from this. Don't sit there and judge everybody based on other people's actions because there is some crooked people out there. Yeah. They'll sit there, and I, I say this because you talk about real estate. I know my parents had bought a house uh, over there on 40th Street because I grew up on 39th and Atlantic. That's where their bar was, a confectionery store. They bought a house, and then several years later, the neighborhood was moving up. I'm talking still back in the early, no, actually late 70s, early 80s. And some realtor taught my parents into selling the place, a house that they bought over on 40th Street, not too far from where we were living because we lived in the apartment upstairs. And uh, the realtor sold the house. And then we found out he lied to my parents about the pricing. And back then, you didn't really have a lot of comps and stuff. He turned around and sold it to a friend and made it out like we, my parents, because... You know, they were still immigrants. They were still learning. They were still learning the language and, you know, just doing business. And granted, a lot of times you place trust in the people because that was the way life was back then. Right. I mean, hell, you can leave your cars unlocked back then. You didn't have to worry about it. Then found out apparently the house was sold to a friend and then they turned around and, and sold it and made about eight grand off of it. And we talking, that was a good bit of money back then. My mom and dad was like, you know, he sold it and basically took advantage of them. Right. And Their lack he, of. Yeah. And even to the day my parents got very ill, my, especially my dad, he still, that was a sore subject with him. You learned though, didn't you? I mean, like you've oh, never yeah, made he learned. twice. Like, he Sometimes those mistakes are necessary to kind of help further the journey, right? Like, And that goes back to, like, contractors having your own team. I mean, you see it. I, I know a person who gave money up front, didn't do the job, disappeared. Hell, I paid a roofer one time, $500 up front. And this was a well-known, reputable roofing company in Savannah. And I paid him up front to get the materials, not, you know, a portion of it. <laughs> Go find him. My lawyer back then said, well, they looked into it. And, it, you know, the funny part was, and like I said, this was a reputable. They even had a full-page ad in the yellow pages for those people who don't remember phone books. Phone book, yeah. Yeah. They had a full-page ad in the phone book. And when my attorney look to sue them to get the $500 back. <laughs> Guess whose name the company was in? And this is not a joke. 
They actually had put the company name in their dog's name. What? Yeah. Man, there was a lot I remember he sat there and said, yeah, they found out that, that apparently the company and the Yellow Page ad was bought under their dog's name. So literally he had nothing, no assets, anything in his name. It was in the dog's name, and then they discovered when they dug deeper, everything else was in his wife's name. So going after him... Pointless. <laughs> it was pointless. Money, yeah. And that's one of the things, you know, caution to the wind. With so much that goes on nowadays, and that hell that was going on back then, but I'm sure now you've got people who've perfected a lot of these things. The schemes get more complicated. All the oh time. my God! I mean, I I laugh about this too. I know it's good to have a little laughter every day. After we opened up Yaya's kitchen, Gentry called me up and she says, "Georgia Power's online." It's like 4:45, right before five o'clock. Said Georgia Power's online. They they gonna cut the electricity. Our freezers are gonna go down and all. She was panicking, like, oh my God, did y'all pay the bill? I says, uh, hang on. I talked to my wife. She said, yeah, everything's paid up. So I says, tell them to go cut cut it off. What? what? <clears throat> and then I had to explain to her. I says, yeah, they usually call. It's it you know scams. They'll call people right before closing and basically it's like i said next time they ask you where they want so they were directing her to go to something at walmart to do some kind of cash or check transfer at some machine that's in the walmart i don't remember what it was but it was funny that she gets all these calls and then you know you get them at home this diary is i got i got a great one uh this is a friend uh I'm not gonna say his name or whatever, but he uh, he gets a call from the county, Richmond Hill, Bryan County, and uh, they tell him like that he hasn't paid his property taxes yet, and that it's gonna go to the auction if they don't, if he doesn't pay him. They know everything about the property. They know everything about him, and uh, so he's convinced, you know. And he, they said, he said, "Well, can I pay it right now?" They said, "Yeah, yeah, you can pay it right now. Just you know, give us a credit card number. We'll give you a confirmation number. If the, if anybody calls again, just give them the confirmation number." So he gives them the credit card number and. They say, okay, you ready? Write it down. Take out a pen. They say, Y-O-U-A-R-E-A-D-U-M-B-A-S-S. And he's like, you are a dumb... Oh, mother! And they hung up. Bam! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they were making fun of him for that for a long time. Oh, these they, scammers are everywhere. It's, you know, you talk about that. I had a similar experience, but one day I had some time on my hand. So the guy was telling me I had owed some money for this and that. He wanted to take the credit card. I said, well, I, you know, I'm an old guy. I don't have a credit card. I only pay in cash. So you ain't got no credit card. I spent nearly a half hour on the phone with him. And we kept on, and he was like, well, he was trying to get me to go to some machine again because he kept insisting, I got a credit card. I said, I ain't got no credit card. I don't deal. I, I always pay by check or cash. So I had him going, going. He was sitting there, and I was testing his metal, pushing his buttons all along, acting stupid. And finally it got to the point, I, I said, well, I, I can't do that. I, I ain't got no transportation. And he got to the, so fed up. It's been, like I said, about 30 minutes. And he says, well, here, let me give you my number, and you can call me back when you figure it out so we can get this 
account, whatever. So, so he said, started giving me a nice word as he was spelling it out. I said, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to call you, but I says, let me give you a number. So I started giving him a number as to ICU8 and left it at that. You kind of put the rest together. And he got so mad that he had been played. But it's <laughs> it's funny with these people nowadays. But they gotten so clever. Yeah. I mean, they use 912 numbers now. I don't even answer my phone anymore. I said, if it's somebody wants to talk to him, if I don't recognize the number, leave me a message. <laughs> hey, your inbox is none. Is, is, um, all right. I think this is a good time. I got to get home for dinner. Dinner? Dinners. I, got, I, know, a good, I know a good place <laughs> you can go for dinner. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, where just, can they find you? Where can they find you? Like, you want to give the information on Yaya's? Do you know the phone number? Well, we just posted something on our um Facebook page. Okay, find them big, on Facebook. Big, big news coming soon. We're making some new changes to the menu. Uh, actually bringing in some new stuff. And one of the things I'm pretty proud of is this thing called uh, spanakortizo. Yeah. Which is this Greek spinach rice. For those who grew up in the old days when we didn't have much, Rice was a big supplier, and it's a Greek traditional thing. Everything's got spinach in it, like spinacopita is very popular. We're fixing to introduce our in-house spinacortizo. We're fixing to change our hours to hopefully accommodate more people in the evenings who are trying to get food to go. And we got a few more new items that we're adding to the list. So we got some new changes in our up, our um, Facebook's getting updated, and we're going to have where not only you can order through Uber, but we're actually getting up with the times, meaning we're going to have online ability to order online. Okay. Instead of calling in. Yeah. And trying to, you know, take the phone call and get the menu items and do the order on by phone. And... Like I said, we're catching up with the times because one of the things we've encountered from time to time is people might order and not show up, and we make the food, and then you're stuck with it. But then tying up that one person, which we work with a small staff. So online ordering is soon to come. So, yeah, we got some new and improved things we're hopefully be implementing very soon. Congrats. Thanks for making that announcement on the podcast. Yeah. That's yeah, pretty exciting. That's kind of exciting. Yeah. This is a few days before the uh, the reveal, even though it's just a, you know, exciting news coming soon. I won't, so, put, it, I won't put it in the description. I'll have to watch this all the way to the end. So uh, probably, I don't know how many people make it to the end, but. But, hey, it's, you know, if you stay tuned, it's kind of like going to a movie. Yeah. And the movie's over with, and you stay after some of the credits, and you get that little extra. Yeah. So that could be a little extra, but, but yeah, this has been fun. Yeah, thank you, Stacey. Thank you so much. And, or, you got to say the Stathy. last name. I'm not going to let you slide. You're not going to let me slide? You got to say the last Stathy, name. Stathy uh, Stathalopoulos. Stath- Three letters at a time. Wait, Stathopoulos. Polis. Stathopoulos. Stathopoulos. There you go. Okay, I'm sorry. There we go. All right, we'll see you next time, man. Thanks so much. Thank you. Easy.